Astonishing Legends would like to thank New Mood, Simply Safe, Wondrium, NordVPN, Manscaped, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. Well, folks, it's that time of year again. I get all warm and fuzzy just thinking about it. The holidays are here once again, and we just wanted to say thanks to everyone out there who makes our show possible. Which, if you're hearing these words, that's you. We don't take the time you spend with us for granted, and we want you to know that. Astonishing Legends is definitely a lot of hard work, but it's also a labor of love, and we are grateful that this experimental hobby that we started over seven years ago has turned into something that we get to keep doing. When a show gets this old, it turns out some things just evolve into traditions, and one of our favorite traditions is having some of our closest friends over for an annual Astonishing Holiday Party, and this year is no exception. Please understand that there are a lot of folks we could add to the invitation list if we could, but for now, we're thrilled tonight to welcome back, in alphabetical order because we love them all the same, Micah Hanks, Jim Harold, Richard Haddam, Rob Christofferson, and our very own Tess Feifel. So stoke the fire, chill the eggnog, and get ready to sit down with us as we reflect on 2021 and the things we're fortunate enough to have, most especially friends, and not just the ones joining us tonight, but every single one of you out there. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is St. Nicholas. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Legenders! I'm calling you from somewhere over Kamchatka on a practice run tonight, trying out a new navigation system on my sleigh, if you believe any of this at all. Join us and some of our very special friends tonight for the 2021 Astonishing Legends Holiday Party. And we're back. That we are, folks. And wow, we had kind of a grandiose plan for this party tonight, but that may have gone out the proverbial window. Still, I think this is going to be an absolute blast. Uh, before we exit Blanket Fortiana here to head over to my house for the party, I did want to mention hmm. two quick things. Firstly, if you'd like to hear me going on and on about the 1975 movie, The UFO Incident, I recently guested with an old friend, Sam Pancake, yes, that's his real name, on his podcast, Sam Pancake Presents The Monday Afternoon Movie, and it was so much fun. I hadn't seen The UFO Incident, but this was a made-for-TV movie about Betty and Barney Hill, starring none other than James Earl Jones and Estelle Parsons, and, oh, yeah. and I expected it to be a poorly made kind of joke of a film, but instead, oh, no. I found it ahead of its time, filled with modern dialogue and amazing performances. And on top of that, it was actually kind of scary. So if you want to combine movies with UFOs with a little bit of lightheartedness and Darth Vader, find Sam Pancake Presents the Monday Afternoon Movie, wherever you get your podcasts. He posted the one with me on December 20th. We'll have a link to it in the show notes too. Uh, secondly, we're highlighting a charity tonight, so listen out for more on that later in the show, but it's called The Hunger Coalition, and it helps the hungry in the community of Blaine County, Idaho. Details to come on how you can make a donation and help feed the hungry if you're able. If you'd like to visit their webpage now, you can find it at thehungercoalition.org. So, before we head to the party, we just wanted to briefly remind everyone who we're expecting tonight. 
Micah Hanks will be joining us tonight. He's been on the show several times, so most of you will remember him. Micah hosts several podcasts, including Middle Theory, The Micah Hanks Program, and The Seven Ages Audio Journal. Micah is also a frequent guest on others' podcasts as well, and has been interviewed by Vice, CNN Radio, Coast to Coast AM, Mysterious Universe, Hot Air, and a number of other outlets. And on top of that, he is co-founder and a contributing science writer at thedebrief.org, a source of rigorous reporting on frontier technology, future science, the world of defense, and knowledge on the periphery of human understanding. Keep up to date with all of his current and future projects via Twitter or at MicahHanks.com. And if you know paranormal podcasting, then you know that Jim Harold is the OG of it, and he loves nothing more than exploring mysteries, ghosts, UFOs, cryptid creatures, and more. You can find him weekly on the Paranormal Podcast, Jim Harold's Campfire, and Jim Harold's Plus Podcast. And on top of that, now his daughter, Cassandra, has gotten in the business with her own show called Unpleasant Dreams. Stay up to date with every creepy story Jim and now his daughter are working on by following him at the Jim Harold on Twitter. And, of course, you remember our dear, dear friend Rich Haddam, who likes to say, among writers, one thing is agreed. Endings are hard, and that's why he keeps coming back to Astonishing Legends. He is a writer, producer of Titans, No Tomorrow, Dead of Summer, Damien, Witches of East End, Supernatural, Grimm, Once Upon a Time in Wonderland, The Gates, Miracles, Lost Room, Mothman Prophecies, Under Siege 2, Dark Territory, and, of course, is himself a verified astonishing legend. Also joining us tonight is one of the most knowledgeable researchers and podcasters in the UFO business, Rob Christofferson, host of Our Strange Skies and co-host of the CODA podcast. He also plays Myron Dripchin on Order of Podcasters <laughs> oh, and is the dungeon yeah. master of the podcast Rolling Through the Realms. Follow at Your UFO Guy, that's Y-E-R, UFO Guy on Twitter for updates. And finally, our very own Tess Feifel returns for a special appearance with us. Tess is our longtime head of research, social media manager, producer, Facebook super moderator, and, well, we just don't have enough titles for everything she does for us. But she'll be on a bit tonight remotely as she is traveling at the moment. Okay, man, let's get out of here and get over to the party. Rich, man, how have you been? It's so good to be back here with you again. It's so great, Scott. This is my favorite uh, tradition of the year. I love these parties you throw. I'm just, I'm glad I can be a part of it. I'm so excited. I can't wait for everyone. We've still got a, a few people we're waiting for, right? Do you think they'll be able to get here through the snow? Yeah, I'm hoping so. I know that Forrest has a four-wheel drive, and I think that Micah and Jim both ride motorcycles, Ooh. and Rob lives in the snow. It's always snowing where he lives. So Well, that's true. So he shouldn't have any trouble. It's just always so Christmassy. We've got the fire in the fireplace, and I just, it's the Christmas tree smells better than any year before. It's the darkest time of the year, but it's bright and warm and inviting in here, but it feels like it's it's a perfect night to, to meet up with other people who believe in the spirits beyond the veil. Oh yeah, I could I couldn't agree more. Oh, I think I think I see Forrest coming in the door. Forrest, over here. Oh, hello, hello, hello. Oh, so you, you just pressed accept. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for accepting my uh, invitation that you sent. Yes, well, uh, and thank you. Why, do, why don't you go over to the bar and get a drink and uh, sit down here with me and Rich? Yes, I think I will. And if you'll excuse me, this is where I keep my bar for I'm here in the corner. Oh, of, I oh it, right. no, it's your office. Okay, it's your yeah. office, but I uh, I hide a flask in your file cabinet. Like any good detective, I've got a little stash here. I think what so, Forrest means is that he's going to walk over to the bar in this environment that we're in 
yes. and help himself to a drink out of the pitcher of angry elves that I made. Ooh, I know yes. it sounds weird, but it's yeah. it's that sort of greenish pitcher right over there, Forrest. I think you really like it. It's if you pour yourself one, it's called an angry elf. And let me yeah, tell what's you, right. what's in that? It, it, what is in it? It's just oh an elf God. in the blender on puree, right? Oh come on, man! I would never do that, <laughs> even though that's what it looks like. That yeah. sounds like something Tess Feifel would drink, as long as you dump like a pint of Ben and Jerry's <laughs> butter pecan potato chip Jimmy Fallon bull <laughs> into it. <laughs> but hey, I wish she was here. I do. I know, and I'm I sad know, that I she can't too. make it this year. Well, I think she might be. She's going to call in, hopefully. Oh, good. Oh, Originally good. She's planning good. to attend. But oh. it's my understanding she had a, a spontaneous trip to South Catalonia. So I'm not oh, sure what's going on. Oh, little... oh, look. There's Micah and Jim Harold coming in. Oh! Hello, guys. Over here. Hello. Hello. Uh, so glad you can Let me take it. your coats and shake the snow off of your oh, coats yes, from the snow from the environment you just walked in from. Yes, it's oh, just please. snow. It's blustery out there, but it's uh, very seasonable. And Scott, I love what you've done with the place this year, particularly with the live reindeer i think that's a great uh, addition <laughs> yeah it's good it's uh you know the only catch is finding somebody to clean up after them because they're standing out there for so long but it's it good is compost nice to yeah yeah oh, <laughs> oh there's rob too hey guys rob come on over hey guys come on over come on over <laughs> it was a nightmare out there man this it's a blizzard out there there was a red light in the sky and i you know kind of signaled it turned out to be a ufo like the latest sport model or something like that oh, turns okay. out it, it was a quick trip i got here really quick oh that's great yeah. also by the way i thought signaling was a bad idea as a general rule <laughs> just don't do it with a flashlight and don't flash sos's all over the place right got it, got it got yeah, it scott for us it's a bad idea for rob it's a carpool you know, <laughs> <laughs> Rob, do you know of a story where someone has tried to signal something with Morse code to a, a foe and got their attention? Yeah, mm. the Allagash guys. That's right. Did they? They flashed an SOS and then it came and picked them up. Well, <laughs> John Keel, John Keel did that too, I believe. Yeah, it wasn't an SOS. I think he signaled it uh, in Morse code to go up or down. And it responded. Yes. Now, the, the yeah. Allagash guys were fishing, right? Well, yeah, these guys were all young. They were all college students. They met through college. They went to an art school. Yeah, they were on uh, Eagle Lake, which to get mm -hmm. out to Eagle Lake in Maine, you've got to be, they were partially flown in at one point. They kayaked for days to get up there, but they were pretty isolated. And uh, they ended up doing a bit of night fishing because they, they just hadn't caught anything that, yeah. that day, set up a huge bonfire <clears throat> to mark their campsite. And yeah, they saw a UFO out there. They signaled it. And, you know, kind of like a cutscene, they're back on shore, but their fires died down. Mm. Sounds creepy. like they weren't the only ones doing a little night fishing. <laughs> just quickly, guys, my son wants to say hello to everybody. Oh, hey! Hello, hey, hey, Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas to y'all. Is it still snowing outside? Yeah. Is the wind blowing? <laughs> is it really? What else is going on? I, I don't know. It's you don't know? Snowing. Oh, okay. It's just snowing. All right. Well, how's the bro? How's the reindeer by. doing? Are you gonna get cleaned up now? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I spilled some wine on me. Oh, you did? Yeah. Great. <laughs> <laughs> He's getting into the spirit. We'll see you later. Merry Christmas. Loose rules at the Philbricks. Okay. Merry Christmas. Bye, Rowan. Bye. Don't forget to feed the reindeer. Yeah, Ro. Don't forget to feed the reindeer. And scoop their poop. 
Yeah, so the Allagash guys, and we've never covered that story. I mean, it's obviously it's a famous story, so I know some of the details. But um, Rich, Rich and I covered it together, and we yeah, don't don't worry, guys. Rob, Rob and I pretty much did the it's definitive. Covered. Yeah, okay. yeah, we relived yeah. my childhood <laughs> nightmares because you know I was a kid watching that on Unsolved Mysteries ruined me for life. Just absolutely ruined me for life. I'm just curious, what would everybody here do if they were in that situation? If you were in a remote place, maybe camping, fishing, whatever, you saw a UFO, you could tell that it was aware of your presence, would you get out of Dodge? Would you try to engage it? What would what would everybody do? Based on seven years of doing Astonishing Legends, I would run like the wind as far as I yep. could, as fast as I could. I have no desire to, <laughs> I'm inter- to interact. I'm with I'm with Scott. Scott's you know, showbiz instincts would kick in, and he'd remember, sweeps week, baby. That's the best episode ever. <laughs> right. Just just take some pictures, get some selfies Forrest, from a Forrest, distance. That's, that's what Forrest would do. Forrest would whip yes. out the tape recorder and, uh, and produce a segment. Well, that would, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're either going to take it from you, because here's what I've learned, just it's so obvious to me. People always ask us, well, how do I prevent a a negative spiritual attack or a spiritual attachment or or an encounter more like. And I'd say, just get out your camera. Get out your cell phone. That'll chase me. It's like, oh no, 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 we can't be on we can't be on tape. Sorry. Well, I was going to haunt you and ride home with you, then you know, knock a bunch of stuff over later. But uh, apparently, you know, that would be the best evidence ever. Sorry, we're gonna have to cut this short. It's like an otherworldly PR agent. It's like no comment, no comment. <laughs> you got the cameras, exactly you got the recorders. Right. From UFO stories that we've heard, and I think this might have been, I still was re-listening, you know, because I a few days or a week or so before uh, I pick up again Rob's episode on the Tahunga case with the abduction there. And you, you and uh, Rich were talking about that. And I can't remember, though, if one of the, those episodes or stories, somebody had a camera and they just took it away from them. Like, you know, did the, did the TV show thing where they take the film and zzzz, you know, no, right. no, no photos for you. And so even if you had a camera, they're, they're going to take some. On the other hand, on a third alien hand, they're not always that buttoned up. They don't get everything right. It's just like, eh, it's close enough. Let's get out of here. You think they're a higher intelligence. So I have to assume that they already know your presence, whether you're flashing your uh, flashlight at them or not. They've scanned the area. At least that's what would happen on Star Trek. They just know all the biological entities in the in the area and all the heartbeats and what, what species you are. So I must assume. But then again, they do some really dumb, goofy things from our viewpoint. It depends, I think, on the competency of the aliens themselves. Because regardless <laughs> yeah. of whether you believe in the Ed Walters story or not, the Gulf Breeze sightings, those aliens were terrible at their job of abducting this man, getting him on board this ship. And you just kept taking pictures of them. Like, they're terrible. Mm-hmm. Get new ones. <laughs> Well, exactly. And then sometimes pictures are okay if you believe who is the the Swiss fellow with the compound now. Billy Meyer. Billy, Billy Meyer. Meyer. The Billy Meyer story. <laughs> Very Christmassy, silver Christmas ball type UFOs. I always, when I see those photos, I, I it puts a Christmas warmth in my heart. But the best photos, you got to go to John Tenney for these ones because they, mm. they were the first photos I ever saw of it, is the uh, photos that have one arm in them and it's covered in silver silver tinfoil and there's yeah. a laser gun in it. Those are the best photos. You, If you haven't seen those, they're amazing. Those are from uh, Billy Meyer? Yes, they are Billy wow. Meyer photos. Okay. Oh, all right. Yeah. Well, so, I, you know, just totally adding validity to a story. Absolutely. If you grew up in the 50s and watched a lot of sci-fi on TV, it's spot on. Buck Rogers, all that stuff. It's right in that wheelhouse. 
Well, the fact that all of the aliens he encountered only had one arm, and there is a distinguishing feature about Billy Meyer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I, I just want to know one, afraid to ask. one thing is that when you, when you see his ultra-fast one-hand typing, and he only lets you, in the documentary I saw, he, you have to be about 10, 15 feet behind him, and you, I just want to see the screen. I, I want to see if the typing is effective, because I, I never see him hitting the space, you know, the, the backspace. Yeah. It just seems like a stream. No. Right. I guess it's a stream of typing. Fascinating stuff, no matter how you slice it. Yeah, and his photos became iconic because they were the X Files used them for their like yeah. promotional stuff. You know, all the posters with, you know, I wanna believe and stuff like that out there. Mm-hmm. They're all Billy Meyer photos. Well that's a Billy Meyer photo? Yes. The main one? Yes. Oh my god, I did not know that. I did not know that. But when was the last year you would have believed photographic evidence? Because I think that year has long passed. I think for me, you know, having worked in post-production for almost two decades and watching the evolution of Photoshop and After Effects and all that stuff and knowing everything you can do and then, God love him, Captain Disillusion Mm -hmm. on YouTube, just the best YouTube channel ever. He knows After Effects backwards and forwards, all this stuff. He goes and will, anytime something comes out, he'll say, well, this is how I would do it in After Effects. And he shows you or whatever. Yeah. Takes him like five minutes to create something. Interesting enough, Micah and I, this ties into Micah and I, because we used to do a show called The Paranormal Report. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons... We used to listen to that, yeah. Yeah, and and we did a video version of it too. And kind of one of the reasons we don't do that anymore, or I didn't want to do it anymore, honestly, was because at least initially, it was a show of clips, of different clips. And it came to the point of like, well, how do I know any of this is real? Or even if something looks good, you know, how do I know it's not, it's not faked? And it's just like, I I don't want to, I don't want to do this for that reason. I mean, we talked about this, didn't we, Micah? We did. And by the way, I was enjoying myself over here at the bar until you interrupted me. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't fly on the proverbial wall. I was over here chatting it up with Indrid Cold, having a good time, freezing, while you guys warm yourselves by your holiday fire. Yeah, early already. (laughs) What do you got there, Micah? Your drink doesn't look like an angry elf. It's got more of a red uh, hue to it. What is that thing? I don't know. I found something over here in the cabinet (laughs) and poured it into it. I'm not sure really what it is or if it's even consumable, but it's getting the job done. See, this is what... Micah's the guy you want at a party. I don't know what I'm drinking. I found it (laughs) under the sink. I love it. Look, when I was a kid, when I was a kid... And we wanted to get good and drunk at the holidays. You know, we would, no, actually, I shouldn't say that. I don't want to give anybody any kind of bad ideas. But if this were an alternate dimension and this had actually happened, I would have crawled under the sink and I would have literally combined things until I found something that, you know, had that right kind of coloration I was looking for. And then I would have absolutely imbibed with Christmas gusto. But since we're not doing that and that's not this dimension, it is the beverage that you brought with you, the pitcher that has been placed over there on the bar. And Indrid Cold, let me tell you right now, he has a fine beverage he makes himself. It's called Indrid Cold Brew. You can find this online. <laughs> oh, my, oh my God. He's, he's got the website. It's the only time for Christmas, by the way, if you order today. I got to give props to the American Snallygaster Museum for that because, you know, I ran into those gals up there at CryptidCon 2021 and they have all different kinds of chapstick that they sell as part of what they provide. And I mean, you know, after traveling all weekend and it being cold and rainy in November, 
I was badly in need of some chapstick and had left mine at home. And so I went over and I said, I need some chapstick. And they said, we have just the thing for you, Mr. Hanks. Check this out. And they hand me <laughs> their chapstick, Indrid Cold Brew. And it's a winner, let me tell you. Really? So full props to the Snallygasters for that one. Oh. If this is real, I, I, I need some of this. I got I to gotta check this out. Speaking of Indrid and John Keel, that is one of my favorite anecdotes told by Brad Steiger on Jim's show many years ago during an interview where he was relaying some anecdotes from John because they were they were close friends back in the day. And the one that, that kind of freaked me out, I, I suppose it, it freaked both of them out hearing about it, is that when John Keel was told to lay off of investigation, he claimed, I guess through Brad Steiger, because he's telling the story, of course, that three guys mysteriously and suddenly appeared in his apartment with a door locked, of course, just in his living room and told him to lay off. And I don't think that they, at least from Brad's description, weren't totally men in black with the, the trench coats and the black fedoras, more probably normal looking, quote unquote, which may have prompted this next thing where John says, well, how did you get in here, first of all? And what are you talking about? And, and who are you? What's your authority? And at that point, one of the guys goes into his kitchen, reaches under the cabinet, the kitchen sink, into the cabinet, takes out a jug of... Well, I know what he was going for. <laughs> well, without Micah's trimmings of uh, <laughs> a little bit of Clorox, plus some coloring, perhaps, and some Mr. Clean. The guy just picked up a jug of bleach and started chugging it. And that's John's <laughs> bleach that he had bought. Not, not the bleach that he brought. You're know, drinking himself. my bleach. It wasn't prop bleach. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah. Well, I brought bleach that I'm going to drink now and prove to you that I'm not <laughs> a human. And it, it is bleach. No, he just, he went in, started chugging it, and John was like, okay, you're weird. <laughs> Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. He thought that was weird? John Keel yeah. thought John that Keel, was weird. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> it was his own bleach, and also he, did, he didn't have any mixers with it. Just straight, which, who does that? I, I just want to say one thing real quick. Brad Steiger, one of my all-time favorite. Oh, yeah. I say yeah. Uh, a drink to Brad. Yes, a toast absolutely. To Brad. A toast Here's to, to Brad. Absolutely. You know, I'll tell you something about Brad Steiger also really quickly. To your point, Forrest, Brad did know a lot of those those icons, those luminaries. And you know, when I was like 24 years old and working in radio, Brad, I reached out to him because I was interested, of course, and still am, in the idea of Sasquatch, as Astonishing Legends listeners, of course, will know. And I'd read Brad's book, Monsters Among Us, which was a fascinating book that kind of looked at all different kinds of things, but you know, sort of more on that 4T inside of, of cryptozoology. And so I contacted him and uh, asked, you know, would you mind if I interview you? And he was very kind to grant a interview to a young newbie like me. It didn't have a podcast. I mean, I think maybe the podcasts were a thing back then, but if not, it was right before they began. So, I mean, here I worked in radio. And so we spoke for about an hour and I, I remember asking him about, you know, did you ever know Ivan Sanderson? Oh, my boy, did I know Ivan Sanderson? Micah, I will tell you, I remember the night when he actually called me at my home. And I could hear the wind whipping in the background. And he said, my boy, my boy, I have found it. Proof that the abominable snowman of the Americas exists. And he said, of course, what I was talking about was, or what Sanderson had been talking about when he called Brad Steiger on the phone this evening in the middle of the night, had been the Minnesota Iceman. He and Bernard Hivelmans had just gone and had seen this thing in the ice. Wow. And I mean, to hear Brad Steiger telling this story about getting the phone call from Sanderson, I mean, it was surreal. 
but he was always kind. And, you know, we were in touch right up until around the time he died. The last email exchange we had was months before he passed away. I just wrote to him to check in and he said, you know, Micah, it's so good to hear from you. I was afraid that with time and, uh, you know, the business of the everyday that we were falling out of touch. And I said, what? Never. You know, but he, he passed away shortly after that. You know, I'll always remember his email was Time Walker, right? And I think that that actually, if memory serves, had been like a nickname that he had been bestowed by Indigenous Americans he spent a lot of time with. Wow. He indeed was the time, and I think in truth will always be the Time Walker. That's amazing. What a cool story. You guys both, the fact that you both got to talk to him. Oh, he was it, awesome. I mean, yeah, he was. when you think about, oh, now, okay, I'm clearly hearing myself again echoing somewhere I hear is everyone it hearing it yeah i'm hearing it too now it's gone it just left again. okay i i think we know what's going on they're listening to us aren't they <laughs> and not turning down their speakers i don't care if, if spirits from another world are listening i, ju I just hope they're patreon subscribers <laughs> yeah and use that promo code jim <laughs> yeah <laughs> well, let's do this long john neville style and use a landline phone okay look there's a cord you see that this is some technology right here when you work in radio Back in the day, that was how we did it. We didn't use Skype. We didn't use Zoom. I mean, we had a phone line system, a telos system with, you know, six buttons. And you could, you know, they're, they're, that's a much better phone hybrid than the one I have, unfortunately. But I've got one. But, you know, that's the thing, though. I mean, late night radio, everybody knows the most listened to late night radio program, Coast to Coast. If you go on that show, you still got to have a landline. That's right. Phone. You gotta have that's it. awesome. And is that because <laughs> they're concerned about a cellular connection breaking up? Yeah. yeah. Reliability. They know it works. Exactly, they do. And you know, I mean, to that point, Jim, I am fascinated with all kinds of communication and having an accorded landline to me, I actually upgraded and recently got a really nice phone and a, and a decent handset too. And there's something about that. You know, I don't know if it's just, you know, going back to my days in radio or just actually the early days of radio, even before I think probably any of us were in this. If you listen to the old classic Art Bell shows, there's something about that conversation between that host and then the caller, right? Yeah. And like you said, Jim, that technology is foolproof. I mean, if you, if you need a reliable way to contact somebody, a landline phone's going to do it if you still have one. Problem is nobody's got one. But there was something very, yeah. obviously, I'm old enough that when I was growing up, the phone, that was the only means of communication you had besides talking to somebody in person. Yep. And in the 90s, when I first read Phone Calls from the Dead, those stories were so powerful. And I, I'm like, why is this so particularly creepy? And then I just thought, it's because of our relationship with the telephone. You're, we're people who... In that day and age, the best news and the worst news you might receive in your entire life would very likely come to you from a phone call. I'm sorry, my dogs are barking at the reindeer. Sorry about that. <laughs> Have another drink. This is Taylor in Dallas. And when I'm not sipping dirty martinis with Bigfoot, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now let's get back to the show. Rob, I have a question for you. In all of your shows and stuff that you've done, whether whether you've talked to people either on the air or off, like who was the person that left the biggest impression on you or that you were you in, interacted with besides Rich Haddam? <laughs> okay, he's the top of our list, but thanks guys. I think the one the one that really impacted me, there are two actually three cases in particular kind of speak to me in in terms of the credibility of the people involved and just the uh, 
reliability of them. First is um, when we were deep diving Lonnie Zamora. Oh, yes. You couldn't shake. That, that guy was clearly shaken by what he saw. It right. startled him. But everything, it, he went over every detail moment to moment to moment to moment because that's what he was trained to do. And through that, he became one of the most reliable eyewitnesses. Like, he's top tier for me. The, the second one is Herbert Shermer. Herbert Shermer's about as down to earth as you as you get. And there's a YouTube clip of him giving a presentation about what happened to him. It's just very by the book. He goes through hypnosis and he recounts like spending about 30 minutes, 20 to 30 minutes aboard a UFO being shown around. There's this uh, great uh, line that these beings, which were they were very human looking. They had this insignia on their uniforms that had kind of like a snake on it. And they said, we want you to know us, but we don't want you to know us that well. Basically, that's what they got at. And <laughs> the thing about Herbert Shermer's case is the ridicule that that man experienced is probably greater than anybody. Because in Ashland, Nebraska, where he was from, the townsfolk there literally took a mock dummy shot it with bullet, you know, put bullet holes in it, put fake blood on it, and they strung it up in the cemetery, local cemetery. Oh, when he went to Boulder, Colorado, because this was during the time of Project Blue Book, this is when the Condon Committee starts coming in to um, handle the UFO investigating. And he goes in for regressive hypnosis. The town people in Boulder, Colorado, blew up his car with dynamite. Oh, man. What, what the, is that? The, what is that about? What is that reaction people are having? I don't know. And the thing is, is Herbert Shermer had like a level head about this the entire time because when he was talking about the dummy that they strung up, he's like, it didn't offend me. I thought it was kind of funny. <laughs> is this common? I, I, I got to say, I haven't heard a ton of, of people, other witness, people coming forward and having such a negative reaction. Have you guys, like Betty and Barney Hill didn't have that. Mm, Betty and Barney Hill kind of got doxxed by John Luttrell, who, um, if I remember correctly, Barney Hill had hired a lawyer to stop him from publishing the story, but by the time it was too late. But uh, people weren't hanging them in effigy. And Yeah. Before you answer, and Forrest, I want you to, I know you're about to answer this question, but also just quickly, for people that are listening that might not know who Lonnie is, can you do like a two-sentence thing on Lonnie's experience? Sure. So Lonnie Zamora, he was a police officer in Socorro, New Mexico. And in April of 1964, it was around 5.45 p.m., he, uh, he had just, a uh, car had passed him going really fast, so he decided to chase it. He was going to give him a ticket. And he ends up hearing this roaring sound, and he sees this kind of, like, flame in the sky. And he thinks it's the mayor's old dynamite shack that's about to blow up. So he drives over in the direction, and in this arroyo, he sees an object on the ground. At first, he thinks it's an overturned car, but once he gets a better look at it, he sees that it's an egg-shaped object that's laying on the ground, supported on legs. He ends up seeing two short people outside of this thing that quickly turn around. He kind of loses sight of it for a second, but they get back in their object. This thing lifts up in a, this huge roaring fire. It eventually gets to a certain point in the air. The fire shuts off. 
and this object streams away. So that's Lonnie Zamora. Herbert Shermer, he was a he was a police officer with the Ashland, Nebraska Police Department. His sighting is fitting for a Christmas episode because it happened December 3rd, 1967. So he was out on patrol. I believe he was on the uh, the edge of town near these two gas stations. And he sees what he believes is a truck, truck lights. It's just these red lights parked uh, a few hundred feet away. So he goes and he investigates it. And he realizes that it is a like a disc-shaped craft that's just kind of sitting on the ground there. And a few seconds later, this craft shoots this red light at the ground. It lifts up, making this like huge whistling sound, and it shoots off. And he looks at his clock, and it had initially read 2.30 in the morning. In the next moment when he looked at it, it, it was 3 a.m. So he goes back, he writes in his notebook, believe it or not, you know, I saw a UFO. And word of this gets around because the, the police chief at the time reported it to the local police department. So the press comes rolling around and the condom committee gets in touch, want him to go out there. They do regressive hypnosis. And that's when he learns he was brought on board by these beings. They showed him around the ship. They showed him how it worked. And he actually drew sketches of it, like the propulsion system of this object. Yeah, he, he ultimately... He stayed on with the Ashland, Nebraska Police Department for a little while, but he ultimately moved to the Pacific Northwest before he died in 2017. And the cool thing is, there was a comic book created of this account. It's called December 3rd, 1967. If you have... Oh, yes, I interviewed the author. Yeah, Mike Chisorka. Yeah. And, Ah. you know, it's on Comixology. You can actually buy it from Mike on eBay. That's where I got my copy of it. But it comes, uh, if you get the physical copy, it comes with a CD of the presentation that Herbert Shermer gave. It's an audio presentation. It's it's really great. Uh, If you can get your hands on it, it's on Comixology, digital comic retailers and stuff. So I was just going to say, that was 12 days before the Silver Bridge collapsed. Yeah, exactly. I just have one quick question. Do you guys feel that there's more of a stigma for UFO experiencers than, let's say, experiencers who say they've seen a ghost? Because I certainly think that's the case. Maybe it's changing, but it's like, oh, you've seen a ghost. Oh, that's cool. Tell me all about it. I've seen a UFO. Uh, uh, Yeah, that's nice. Uh, (laughs) That's nice. Uh, Yeah, that's great. That's cool. Yes, I I think because ghosts are so much more of a common experience. Most of us, my mom saw one. You know, everyone's uh, had some kind of weird kind of thing that could be explained spiritually, perhaps. And I know of some people who have had sightings in the sky that are, I guess it depends on the level. A good friend of mine, you know, he was out on a Boy Scout troop and they saw this one very bright light in the sky start zigzagging, you know, over the hills in northern Arizona. And they all saw it. And it's like, well, we don't know what that is, but that's not such a leap to tell other people about. Right. It's just like, well, we saw a light. It did weird things. It's like, okay, well, maybe, you know, who knows? But when you say you saw one up close or you went on board, that's a whole nother leap. And we found this too, psychologically and sociologically, when we were just doing our interview with Terry Lovelace in that it's just funny how people, everyone's got a jumping off point. Everyone's got like a no cross boundary. People will say like, okay, well, it seems like the Pentagon is acknowledging the military is acknowledging that uh, UAPs are a real phenomenon, that we don't know what they are. 
They could do miraculous things that break the laws of physics as we know them. But that's one level. That's okay now to say. But to say, well, I was taken on board. They stuck me with a bunch of instruments, showed me a star map, and showed me a hybrid baby that's supposedly mine. Okay, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Because there's not supposed to be anybody on board these things. Right. You're not supposed to venture into acknowledging that there are other races, perhaps, or, or entities, and they, they're interacting with us. That's the leap that a lot of people won't go. And when you do that, that makes them upset. And I was about to say that reaction in Colorado seems, I don't know, maybe more organized. I won't say governmental or more common, perhaps, is that reminded me of our episode 115 with David Davis, the witness to Broadhaven and that incident. You know, we asked him, it's like, well, you're, you're pretty open about these. He's like, you know, it's like a lot of people, it's like, look, it happened to me. I can't deny it. I'd be lying to myself and to, and to others. I'm just telling you what happened to me and what I saw. And when he would do that, like he said, I think he was talking about it in a pub. Somebody overheard him and then punched him in the face. <laughs> and it's like, well, why does that guy care? Because I think that that kind of talk frightens him. It, it threatens his worldview. Exactly. It's like, shut up. I don't want to hear about that. Either you're a liar or you're crazy, or if it's real, you just blew my mind. And I'm frightened of that. And I think that's, people react out of fear and do the most awful things when they're cornered. Absolutely. Forrest, you mentioned Terry Lovelace. You know, Mm -hmm. I recently was able to spend a weekend with him in Kentucky. Yeah, Terry's a fantastic guy. Wow. And that's the funny thing. I think usually for people, it's the other way around. They meet somebody at an event, you know, and they already know their story, or they have interviewed that person or heard an interview with that person. Now, I did familiarize myself with some of Terry's story before I met him, but my first experience with Terry was showing up late at night after a long drive to Kentucky at the uh, invitation of my dear friend, Tiffany Mack and her husband, Brent. And I arrive late at night and they pour me a bourbon and I sit down at the table with Terry and with all the other guests who are there and uh, we talk all night. But then the next morning, you know, I'm usually up early and I'm the first one making coffee and, you know, here comes Terry. And so from that point on, it was a weird weekend, but I got to tell you, in the midst of weirdness, Terry Lovelace is about one of the most normal people you could possibly meet. I yes. mean, he's just a wonderful guy. He's down to earth. He never talks about his personal experiences unless you ask him. A lot like Travis Walton. And I'll note, I've spent a good amount of time around Travis Walton over the years. He, again, is somebody who he'll talk about politics. He'll talk about current events and history. He'll talk about everything unless you ask him about that event. Frankly, he usually doesn't talk about that unless he's on stage. And that's what strikes me about guys like Terry and Travis. You know, people who, they are UFO experiencers, but never by choice. And they don't tend to wear that like a badge. And that's the difference to me when I see people who are the ones who are experiencers and who want the whole world to know it. And then the people who just happen to have had an experience. Terry seems very much like one of those, but just to your point, it's interesting to hear that you guys had spoken with him because I haven't heard that episode yet. He seems like a fantastic person and just about as down to earth as you can imagine. And yet, if his experience is true, you know, that that steps over into an area of reality that most of us don't get to experience, but which increasingly with time seems to be apparent. And that's all the rage these days, isn't it? At least in, in the area that I operate, UFOs, UAP, that dialogue has changed. We had him on for the first time two years ago, and then we just had him back. And we recorded him for two parts. The first one came was our last episode, and the other one's coming out as we're recording this. Surprise, folks. We're at the Christmas party, so a little bit before Christmas. What? The Terry Lovelace 
part two, which is his second appearance, is coming out in two or three days. And it's stories from his latest book. And one of them is one of the craziest stories I've ever heard, ever. Well, you know, I mean, as far as crazy stories that Terry might tell in the future, yeah, I might have one that I could share with you. And I'll, I, yeah. can, I can keep this, this brief, but I mean, you know, often when people ask me if I've had any paranormal experiences, I tell them, uh, no, I'm the most boring guy in the world as far as my own experiences, who looks at the most interesting experiences other people have. But so I went to this event up there in Kentucky that I was talking about where I met Terry. And of course, Terry Lovelace would be the guy who accompanies me to investigate some potentially valid paranormal phenomena, right? Yeah, so that's great. What happens is we get there and I haven't told this on any shows or anything. So this is, as, as oh, usual, is Astonishing Legends first. Yeah, Christmas party exclusive. Yes, it is indeed. Yeah. So the following morning after I arrived in Kentucky, my friend Tiffany's husband, Tiffany's my friend of many years. You know, this was funny enough, the first time I'd met her husband, Brent, they were married, I think, just a couple of years ago, and we were very fast friends. He and I were talking. We have a lot of mutual interests, Brent and I, and so, you know, we were catching up and talking, and he said, and by the way, there's some muddy footprints that were left on the patio downstairs. You ought to go check those out, because something seems to have walked onto our downstairs patio outside left footprints all over it. And I was like, oh, well, okay, cool. You know, I'm thinking it's going to be some wildlife. I said, Terry, Terry Lovelace, you want to just come with me and we'll go down? So of course, Terry joins me. And so we go downstairs and we walk in onto the patio. But what is immediately apparent, and I've got photographs of these footprints, they appear to be human. They're fairly small. The mud is caked such that a lot of distinctive characteristics aren't apparent. But again, it's obviously a let me give a bit of brief background. I have not, I'm not, I'm not an expert, but I have studied as a, what you might call an avocationalist, a dedicated amateur. I've studied tracking, man tracking, and also animal yes. tracking. And so I've got a lot of experience in the forest and I've read, you know, Al Taylor's, you know, book on man tracking, also Ty Cunningham's rather laborious textbook on what he calls forensic sporology. So, I mean, I've read a lot about this subject and tracking is fascinating to me. Again, Based on my limited experience, the footprints are obviously bipedal. And in fact, as you're seeing displaying of the toes, as they walk around, they come onto this patio, they come between some furniture, go around back behind it, and as they come near the house and walk by the windows, and keep in mind these windows are very close to the room where I'm actually sleeping, where there are no blinds or anything, so I'm laying there, and this is something would have walked right by there. The splaying of the toes to the right from the right footfalls indicates that something had been looking to the right as it's moving past the window. And I'm like, perfect. So Terry, <laughs> Where in Kentucky are you for this? I'm in greater Lexington. Okay. In the country outside of Lexington. So okay. there's Terry Lovelace and I, and we're looking at these footprints going, what in the... And it's obvious that they're human, but the problem is, is it's like, okay, well, when were these made? So Brent had said, well, you know, these obviously were made sometime early in the morning because he is a pilot and he comes in and everybody been asleep. And he said, I went down there and I saw these footprints. And I said, well, this is simple. I said, have you got a, any kind of a security system? He says, oh yeah, we got cameras all over the place. And he points up and there's a camera. And I said, well, let's look at the camera. I'd like to see who did this, if this was one of us or, or, or whatever. So then Brent goes and he starts reviewing the footage and it takes him a long time to get to the portion of the footage where the footprints were made and he can see clearly on the patio as night or early morning turns to dawn and, and lights starting to appear and there are no footprints there and he skips ahead to about noon the following day and you can clearly see the footprints so he's like okay cool we know this happened sometime in the morning so let's narrow this down he starts narrowing it down 
and he gets to right before 8 a.m. And in fact, I actually made a copy of this video because it's so interesting. The footage is rolling, and then all of a sudden it just cuts out and skips 15 minutes ahead, and then the footprints are there. Mm -hmm. That is yeah. some Skinwalker Ranch. That's thing. right, straight off the ranch. Yeah. <laughs> and and, the, and the, the slightly creepy addenda to all that, I mean, we were looking at this footage going, okay. Now, Brent, of course, he contacts the guy who actually installed these cameras for him. I reached out to friends of mine, you know, and asked them, what do you think about this? You know, one very close, dear, trusted friend of mine said, look, you know, those kind of little jumps and footage happen all the time. Don't read too much into that. The interesting thing to me, not being an expert on how these surveillance camera systems work, is that every time they've got like a couple of cats there on the property and a small dog too, and every time one of those little dogs or cats runs by, I mean, it triggers all the cameras and they're yeah. filming for a few minutes. And yet the camera's rolling up until whatever apparently shows up and walks onto this patio and then re-engages with nothing there to apparently actually trigger the camera 12 to 15 minutes or so if memory serves after the footprints are left, which appear to be obviously human. And I'm like, well, here's the first yeah. problem. If there's somebody wandering around on your patio, why in the world did your camera not work? So, you know, again, yeah. with this in mind, Brent's like, yeah, I'm going to contact the guy and explain that we've got an issue because that's a security problem. And the guy wrote back and said something akin to, you know, it's not designed to pick up leaves moving when the wind blows. And so if you want us to adjust the sensitivity for you. And Brent's like, I don't think you're understanding. And I'll tell you this. I know what he wrote in his email. It was eloquently written. Brent absolutely skillfully wrote this email. He had me read the whole thing before he sent it to so I know exactly what he wrote. And Brent wrote back to this guy, look, no, I'm not telling you that, you know, leaves are blowing and picking up something. There was somebody on our porch who left thick, muddy footprints and the camera stopped working. What's going on? So I'm driving back from Kentucky on my way home and Brent sends another photograph. And this time he shows another footprint that had been left on a, like a, like a, a water plate, you know, covering like a water line out in the yard. And I'm looking at it, and again, the distinctive characteristics are, they are ambiguous at best, but I will say that what appear to be toes and bare aspects of a human foot are implied in, in the print. And I actually brought that both to Brent and Tiffany's attention. Now, maybe that's not anomalous, but again, like you said, Rich, I mean, <laughs> it's shades of Skinwalker type stuff when the camera conveniently stops working. But what made it so fascinating for me is that while I was trying to figure all this out, Terry Lovelace is right there with me. Yes. <laughs> to your point, do you think certain people attract anomalous activity? Yeah, maybe some was following Terry. Yeah, maybe some people. I mean, Stan Gordon up in Pennsylvania has done work on Bigfoot and UFOs. I mean, the idea that some people are more likely to see a ghost, maybe some people are more likely to experience a UFO, and then maybe some people have something special where they experience all of it. Yeah, who knows? I mean, I, you know, I contacted David Weatherly, too, and he and I had a long talk about it on the telephone. You sent I him the pictures? Uh, I don't know if I sent David the pictures, but I, we yeah. call, I called him and spoke to him twice just about the circumstances. Did it have five toes? I can't remember if you Yeah, they that. appeared to, but again, I would just say that the prints are ambiguous enough. I mean, I, I, let me be clear. If they're anything, they're human, and they are small human feet. They are Small, not. like toddler? Small, no, 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 not like toddler. I would say small, like maybe young person or middle-aged, you know, woman. Now, the interesting thing is, is that naturally thereafter, I've been thinking, well, maybe it was somebody who lived right here. You know, maybe it had actually been 
Tiffany or somebody who inadvertently had gone out there and, you know, was, you know, walking the dog or something. But the interesting thing is, is that with the, and again, this is based on my understanding of how their security system works. And we knew this because every time you go out and come back in, there's a tone and there's apparently a, a record made of entries and exits from the property. There had been nobody enter or exit the house at the time when the footprints would have been left. And we know the exact time, or at least the maybe 12 to 15 minute time frame during which they appeared. And there was no entry or exit that corresponded with that. So what's really creepy is that, again, the skeptic in me would say somebody was just wandering up onto the patio. But the question is, who from outside the house just wanders up at 8 a.m., strolls by, obviously, with the, with the footfalls indicating they're looking to the right, who's looking in the window and then just leaves, goes back through the grass with mud all over their feet. I'm like, what? Yeah, what was the weather like? Was it yes, cold it was out? About I mean, they were... Oh, yeah, Forrest and I are thinking the same thing. There's a discomfort factor to what I gauge as as prank level, how far you're willing to go to prank somebody. Now, if it's, uh, I can't remember the the gentleman's name, who uh, was at Big Bluff, uh, Northern California, Humboldt County, he's got the wooden feet, and he's walking around the... uh, Ray Wallace? Yes. Yeah. And it's like, okay, it was fun to carve the feet, or he had his friend do it out of wood and, and, and put them on the shoes, but he's not getting his feet really cold and muddy to do this. So what, what, yeah, what was the weather like? Would it have been chilly and inclement, muddy? You said at least so it's very damp. It was not very damp. I think that they may have had some rain. If there was wetness, what that was primarily on the grass was probably dew. Where the mud came from is another question. But again, there are trails and things all over their property where, I mean, yeah, one might have easily accumulated. Is this mud. a rural property? Very rural, yeah. And, again, and it's just, so like it's a, a large lot? Yeah, very wooded area, you know, with trails and things like that. They have, like, acres? Yeah, probably. I mean, you know, several acres. So, again, you know, something coming, well, someone. So, so it's not a neighbor. It's not like someone came from the house right next door or whatever. The next nearest house, I mean, would have been probably about a couple of acres away. I mean, you can see, you can probably see one of the nearest homes, you know, across the way on one of the less wooded portions of land where you can actually see. But otherwise, it's a pretty secluded area. Yeah. It's Greater Lexington. How is it in relation to the Appalachians? Because I can see, I was looking, the reason I asked about it was, of course, I, I looked on the maps while you were talking, and I saw that you were 200 miles northeast of Kelly Hopkinsville. <laughs> the footprints <laughs> don't match, but I was curious, you know, so is it tucked into the Appalachians or is it more in the uh, foothill flatland kind of area east of them? It's more in the foothills flatland. I would call it rolling hills. And the other thing, too, that I would point out is that I I don't think that that far west in Kentucky, it's it's technically Appalachia. You know, I Mm -hmm. I live in the Appalachian Mountains. It it can be very remote and rugged in certain parts of the mountains where I am. I mean, you know, actually, uh, you've seen that, Scott. You've been here. You know how Asheville is. I mean, it's like a little beautiful town and then mountains all around it in a bowl, right? But yeah, Kentucky, it's not quite like that. Still certainly very rural. I mean, again, throughout the weekend, Brent had been taking us around and we'd been looking at areas where, in fact, actually there had been an episode of Finding Bigfoot, I think, that had been filmed right there in that neighborhood where, again, in a rural community, but nonetheless where there is a, you know, I mean, a good concentration of homes and people. There had been like, I think, a multiple witness sighting involving three different families who had purportedly seen some kind of a, again, a relic hominoid, to use the, the, the term I like to advocate for these, but a Sasquatch, for lack of any better other expression. 
they'd seen this and there had been an episode about this. And so here again, here's Brent driving us around in his big truck with Terry Lovelace as interested in all this Sasquatch stuff as anybody. But again, it's Oh my gosh, remote. Terry mentioned this to us. You're right, and we he did. didn't know he was with you. He said, I recently went on a Bigfoot. Uh, that's so crazy. And he was with you. Yep, that was, that <laughs> I, love was, yeah. I was the fly on the wall there with Terry. Terry was in the uh, front seat. <laughs> what did he say about the footprints, by the way? What was his reaction? I think his reaction was similar to mine. We both just thought that they looked like, and when I say small, again, you know, I'm, if you if you can see me, if you're watching the video here, you know, I mean, yeah. I'd say that probably about that long, you know, small human footprints, adult though, you know, or teenager maybe. The weird part wasn't the footprints so much as it was what was implied by the presence of the footprints. Why is somebody walking up and looking in the house with mud all over their feet and, and what happened with the camera? <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's... That's the weird part. Now, again, like I said, the skeptic in me would just say somebody was wandering around. That's kind of weird. But I got to be honest. I mean, you know, that's one of the weirder things I've probably had happen when I've hung out with people. <laughs> the more I think about it, the more I think it's kind of, I mean, it's not that strange because it's a small world, paranormal podcasting, all that. We know each other, et cetera. But it is a little strange to me that just a few days ago we talked to him and he said, oh, yeah, recently, you know, Bigfoot. And it was and you were there. That was exactly well, again. That's that's the trifecta of strangeness, you know, which brings us yeah. all together at the holidays too, no doubt. Yeah, but again, and that's the weirdest part of, of the whole story. It'd be really interesting if it was just me there, but the fact that Terry Lovelace of all people was the guy there with me <laughs> observing yeah. all this—that's yeah. that's what makes it so memorable. Terry also said that he rattled off a, a handful of things that were pretty anomalous to him, and he said that you heard some really good calls, you know, the whoops and the tree knocks. Did you guys hear those? Yeah, I mean, that evening, that first evening that I arrived, again, in their very rural property, I mean, there, there were some very unusual sounds that were emanating from the forest nearby. Uh, to me, they did not resemble canines. Now, you got to keep in mind that, I mean, canines, and, and in this case, I would imagine that the canines in question would be coyotes. They have an incredibly diverse range of vocalization. So do cats, uh, wild cats can at times sound an awful lot like people. You may have heard actually the old stories of people who said that they heard panthers sounding like a woman screaming. Have you heard that? Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 yeah, totally. And the same extends actually to lynxes. And then in this region, and actually in Kentucky also, the, the wildcat that would, would be prevalent there, bobcats. I mean, those are still pretty prevalent and, and they can have a diverse range of vocalizations. Now that said, yeah, I will say that there were two vocalizations, some kind of animal calls that we heard in the woods that night that we couldn't identify. Now, I think the problem is you don't want to leap to the conclusion, therefore Sasquatch, but there were certainly vocalizations produced by some kind of wildlife that we couldn't easily identify. Obviously, that must have made an impact on Terry also, if you mentioned that. Yeah, he mentioned it. Absolutely. Yeah, those, yeah those he classic, said he couldn't explain it. The classic Bigfoot vocalizations that you can hear online are really weird because they, they're all over the place. Like there are these, these whoops, but then it sounds like weird muttering, like, yeah, like a whole Chatham. different sound. And then, and then it kind of goes back and forth. It's pretty odd. I'm sure you guys have heard those. Oh, yeah. The ones that are the weirdest to me, though, Rich, actually are the ones that have a musical quality. You know, I, mean, I have a whole separate, like, podcast that's, that deals with the Sasquatch question and tries to approach that scientifically. And, again, Dave Ellis with the Olympic Project and Julie Wrench, who's actually a North Carolina-based researcher who lives down near the Uwari National Forest. I mean, again, when I was a that's kid right, growing up— up the road. Right up the road here. I Dude, can... <laughs> exactly. It's right I near you, Scott. camped in it recently, by the way. Okay, so. so next time you go camping there, call me and let me know, and I'll, I'll drive down because it's just a few Absolutely. hours. Yes, right in your backyard. Yeah. Julie is recording 
these vocalizations that have these unusual, I mean, just these incredible kind of sing-song-like, almost, you know, musical kind of qualities. I mean, some of them are almost haunting in the sense, I'm sure everybody's familiar with the Sierra sounds, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not. No, I'm not. Yeah, I think those are the ones I was, I think those are the ones I was talking about. I think it's the Sierra sounds. Oh, yeah, wait, I, and, which one? Well, go ahead and do an impression, Micah. Well, right, I'm not you had, have impression. you had enough of the, the, the your weird red drink or <laughs> yeah, this, this stuff's doing me well. This stuff's doing me real good. You know what I'd actually like to do, and I don't think that Dave and Julie would mind if I just played one of these because we yeah, played play it. one of my shows. Yeah. I'm gonna just feature an audio sound by one that they have sent along with full credit to Julie. She recorded these, but these would be an example of a compilation of audio recording she has made there in the Uari. So this is right in Scott's backyard. So be prepared to be chilled, my friend. Yep. This is one of these musical sounds I'm talking about, Rich, to your point. This is one of the stranger ones. This is like a okay. almost like a singing kind of audio. Here we go. Were you guys able to hear that okay? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Think, what yeah. the heck was that? Julie recorded that? Yeah, Julie Ritz. Because uh, I think she could probably license it to Billie Eilish for a couple hundred thousand. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <actually>. <laughs> See, again, if, if that's an animal call, I mean, yeah. what I'm saying, I think it's important to make the distinction between saying, okay, oh, wow, that's Bigfoot. That appears to be an animal vocalization that, that is not easily identifiable, and, and that to me is interesting. I don't know what that is, but I mean, it's, it's something very interesting that was recorded right in your backyard, Scott. Yeah, that's, that is really amazing. Well, I love stuff like this because this is one of those things you can compare to other things that we do have. I mean, there are people who have made their livings for decades recording animal sounds in regions all across America. And those people can listen to this and go, all right, I'm very familiar with that area. I've recorded this animal and this animal and this thing and that thing and all that. And they can give a perspective on this. I mean, there is something physical in our world you can compare it to. And you can also say, I'm very familiar with this area. I have no idea what that is. Absolutely. There's also Cornell University's E, I think it's called E-Bird. And then there's the Audubon Society, I believe, has an incredible compendium of audio recordings. And then, of course, you can go online. I mean, you want to hear something really strange, go on YouTube and just look up Fox Vixen Call. Oh, this is God. one of the leading calls of the red fox. Mm-hmm. It's one of the weirdest sounding things you've ever heard. So oh, That and the I Fennec mean, Fox. Cornell, fox. Merlin Bird ID. I've got Merlin it. Bird ID. There you go. Yes. And it's great. The bird can be making the noise and you... Let your phone hear it, and it tells you the bird. It's unbelievable. So cool. What, Shazam yeah. for birds? Yeah, yeah. Shazam <laughs> for birds. Hey, Siri, what bird is that? Look, she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. But Jamie yeah. Foxx is going to do a spinoff. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to hear. Hey, if you guys have any recordings of Jamie Foxx or Red Fox, I love those guys. So I'm yeah, okay. ready for it. Well, the Red Fox, I don't know if we could play it because he, yeah, he I don't think we could. That's true. His records are legendary. There's one tidbit about Bigfoot that I, I love to share because it's in this obscure article. It was in, I think it was in Fate Magazine. I think Jerome Clark wrote it, and. There was this, I can't remember if it's just one guy or a couple that were driving on a road and a Bigfoot stepped in front of their car. It lifted up its hair and it, the car engine died. (laughs) 
And the yeah, thing you is, told me this before. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> I love you that. You told me this. Yeah, it did this more than once. Like after it put down its hair, the car came back to life, lifted up its hair again, and it died again. That yeah. is so great. <laughs> okay, I'm a car guy, right? So I want to talk about this first, just a second. I'm gonna just categorically, mechanically. How does that work? Is it an electromagnetic pulse? It has to be yeah. something that interrupts the engine operating, but it has to also be something that doesn't cause enough damage that it can't come back to life after it's over. Right. Which I guess is, is an EMP. That's weird. Wait, Rob, Man. what year was this? It was in a 1973 issue of Fate magazine. Right. Okay. And people have talked about this, but this used to be a classic element of UFO encounters. Yes. Your car shuts down. Mm-hmm. I don't. Yeah. I don't think I hear that anymore. What's the difference in cars that the cars don't shut down now? You would think they'd be more susceptible. Yeah, that's what well, I would think. Electronics. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's still happening. If you read uh, Linda Godfrey's book, also called Monsters Among Us, but a different book, there's there's a section in there about a car dying in the presence of something. But I, in terms of modern cars versus old cars that's a good question they have way more computers they used to not have computers in them at all they didn't have any kind of chip right yeah remember the movie tom cruise war of the worlds the mechanic that he visits there's a minivan he's working on and he he, you know tom cruise is a loves motorcycles understands engines and he goes what year is that he says well it's pre probably pre-obd right on board diagnostics but also it has something to do i think with the distributor and the the solenoids in it and that it wasn't responsive to electromagnetic pulse so yeah that right. car was safe it could start up every car was built after that it is subject to emps and therefore it just cocks it out yeah. a dear friend of ours within the arc old-time friend and contributor and has a story with her dad where what's interesting is that this happened to him while driving in a fairly good clip where the car just quits and he's freaked out he pulls over and then some time passes the the car starts up the thing that i didn't get from the brief description was that he saw anything or he got out and looked and saw any kind of lights or anything. It was just that phenomenon where suddenly the car conks out and then miraculously starts up. Now, what we know is that the car will not start unless you turn the ignition key again. Once it's off, it's off unless, of course, it's an older car. You can push start it. That'll get the motor going. But that wasn't the case here. It just, the car just started up again. So some strange phenomenon happened, but he, I guess, was out of probably a good caution of of not wanting to see what it was and beckon anything. He was startled enough that he just stayed in the car and just was trying to think of, like, what could possibly cause this until the car just started up on its own again. And there's a couple possibilities there. There's fuel starvation. There's, you know, something in the fuel line choking out the the gas delivery. Which would shut the car off, but not start it up again. But how does it kick it back up? That's weird, yeah. If the junk fell back and then got caught in a filter. I'm, by the way, I'm stretching. I'm just saying there are cases (laughs) where something like that could happen. But not for 15 minutes. That's that's my point is that, you know, it it might spot. Certainly we've heard uh, all cars, we've heard diesel, what's called dieseling. But it doesn't shut off for minutes at a time and just without any effort at all or having the car turn over, does it just start up again? So it's a very strange thing in that a lot of the tropes or whatever, they seem to go through these eras. Rob knows about these, you know, where for a while certain things seem to be very popular in that field. And then the style changes, the tastes change, either with them or what we experience or report. Well, that's because our consciousness is dictating what we're experiencing Interestingly enough, you can pinpoint the moment that 
UFOs started to disable cars, and it was in 1957. And it's often linked to a UFO flap in southern, in to the southwest. It was mostly centered around Texas, but there was a case in Loveland, Texas, in which this UFO was seen like just hovering just above the road, and it disabled cars. But after Wait, that, is that where were... the frogs are from too? That no, that's Loveland. that's yeah, that's Loveland. Yeah. That's a different Loveland. Loveland, Ohio. Loveland is in Texas. Yeah, yeah Loveland, Texas. Oh, okay. Sorry, I'm mixing yeah. up cities. Okay, thank you, thank you. <laughs> but Similar from, names. Easy. I was gonna be like, hey, we just yeah. made a connection here. The frogs, the car. Yeah, okay. yeah. But it was yeah. around that time period, and it wasn't just in uh, Loveland. It was in other areas during that flat. But it was around that time that people started reporting ufos disabling cars and then it just kind of became a thing you saw more and more years ago i worked i had a friend that i worked with who was one of those people and maybe some of you know these folks who who couldn't wear a watch or anything like the watch wouldn't work she'd have all these problems this was when i used to work in hollywood in california and i lived in playa del rey which is a pretty good little click away and i would for whatever reason her car wasn't there and i offered her a ride home and i gave her this ride in my car which was a 1990 nissan 300zx which i still have to this day i've had it since 93 she oh, got wow. in the car we went i'm gonna say about four miles maybe and my car died just totally died side of the road pull over i was so embarrassed like it was just it just stopped street working. light interference phenomenon <laughs> it's like yeah it was yeah. The, the whole thing. It's just like, and so I had to, I don't even remember how we got out of it, but I had to have it towed to the shop, the whole deal. And, you know, she got a ride probably in a cab or something. And I went home AAA. I don't even know. I can't remember that part of it. But then when it got to the shop, my mechanic was like, yeah, starts right up. Nothing's wrong with it. And it never had that problem ever again. I still have this car. I've had it decades. Never, ever did it ever do that, except for when she was riding in it. And here's the thing about it. Is this the Sprite? No, this is my 1990 Nissan 300ZX twin turbo. Yeah. But what I can say, too, because I know this car inside and out, she was in the passenger seat. It's a two-seater, no backseat of any kind. You sit down and sing, and and then in the front of the passenger seat on the floorboard where you would rest your feet, like if you were the driver, it'd be where the pedals are. But on the passenger side, there's a wooden board under the carpet. And behind that is the ECU. It's the controller for the car, the computer. That's where her feet were resting. And I'm convinced to this day, like something channeled through her body that just killed the car. And it, like by the time the car got to the shop, it was fine. And I like my mechanic was like, yeah, pick it up. There's nothing wrong with it. And I drove it to and from work for years after that with no issue. It was all just the one well, time I gave her okay. Ride. But now see, now we got to get her back. You got it. It's like, okay, mm. I'm going to drive the same route. First, I'm going to take this person, then that person, then uh, her, then a different person, then her again. <laughs> I don't care. You get her ass back here, and we do this, and we prove it. We get, guys, this See, is what you wouldn't want her grasp. flying over on the plane because you know. Uh, <laughs> no, Jim, and here's Jim will book her a train. Okay, planes, trains, right. automobiles, whatever it takes, we'll get her here. She and her husband have like a really cool ranch on the big island that I've never been to, but I've like Is I look at it online. Ranch? It's amazing. No, it's not skinwalk, but it's like little huts and you go and you're when you're trying to get off grid and have a thing or whatever. But the other thing I remember yeah. was that her dad was like a car collector and she drove a Volvo P eighteen hundred, which is the really old two door Volvo with the fins in the back, which wouldn't have any computers in it. And that's what she oh. drove to and from work every day. Interesting so, yeah. point. Well, you know, I mean, you can speculate. And again, you know, I, li I like where Rich's head is because, I mean, propose an experiment. Anybody remember Hillary Evans' final mm -hmm. book on streetlight interference? 
Rob, I, bet you, I saw you uh, nodding your head. But I have a few of her books. I know of the book. I've never read it, but I do know of it. You yeah. wrote an article on this, didn't you, uh, Micah? Yeah, I probably did at some point. I mean, Hillary Evans, he was a, a Fortean researcher of many different interests, but I think his, his final his final contribution was on this phenomenon of people walking. I know Patrick Weege published a book via Anomalous Books about this, about streetlight interference. People, and how many of us have experienced that? You know, where you, often it's described as if you feel anxious or if, let's say you're walking home at night and, you know, you're a little bit more aware, you know, because you never know if something's going to happen. Something might jump out of the bushes or somebody might come around the corner. And this is when people tend to, as they're walking under streetlights, you know, knock those out. Mm-hmm. Whether or not there's a, an actual genuine phenomenon there or not, who knows? But it is interesting when you think about that as being some sort of a natural mechanism that a biological organism, and keep in mind human beings and all other animals being bioelectric organisms, you know, we all produce electricity and in various capacities. Think about, you know, an electric eel, for instance, and how it is adapted to produce so much of that that it can actually disable its prey. So it's right. interesting, and this is entirely speculative, but it's interesting to imagine another animal that is able to produce an electromagnetic pulse, either as a warning system or as some kind of a communication or as some sort of a natural defense mechanism, what that would be an adaptation for, I don't know. But the coming back to that story of the Sasquatch apparently knocking out the, the vehicular electronics on board electronics. Because again, where do we recognize that from? We know that from UFO literature. Again, like Rob was talking about, UFO literature. And, and in, there's a great video online, in fact, where there's a new system that was d- developed just within the last few years, which produces a electromagnetic pulse mm-hmm. that will disable a vehicle. And they use these at checkpoints, yep. especially at border Oh, yeah, the cops have them. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. so they can disable a car with an EMP. So the question they is, have to biology little drones that go All right. under the cars too. But think about this: so UFOs disable cars, Bigfoot disables cars, but do phantom hitchhikers disable cars? <laughs> I don't think so. I've never heard of that. That's a good question. So we've got these three different phenomenon <laughs> interacting with automobiles. Two of them have a physical effect on the automobile. The third one doesn't. Well, because the they difference? need the ride, Rich. They need the, <laughs> they need to get to the home that they lived at twenty years ago. They, right. Yeah. Oh, Bigfoot's not in the car. He doesn't need to get anywhere. No. Well, you know, Forrest, you make a lot if of sense. If Bigfoot comes up to your car, more than likely he <laughs> wants an egg salad sandwich that he's going to spill on a picnic table, a la Momo, who had very okay. long hair and all that. <laughs> Talking about phantom hitchhikers, I've actually yes. had people come on campfire and say, and I've had multiple people have had this experience, not hitchhikers, but people utterly convinced that they've hit someone with a car. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. they will get out and there's no one there. Not to poo-poo that, but isn't that isn't there a category of OCD that has that? Like that sort of like paranoia that you've hit someone? Yes, but or... here's the thing. Those people never have hit anything. And I think, right. though, it would depend on what the person, what the witness describes. Again, you know, Jim, maybe you could speak to that point. I mean, yeah, the, it's a difference between a paranoia and an actual. No, it wasn't collision. like, oh, did I hit that person? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, no, it was like literally somebody walked in front of my car. Mm-hmm. I swore oh, yeah. I hit them. Yeah. I got out and there was no one there. And I've had oh, at least yeah, two or three different. people say that. And that oh, made wow. when Rich said about that about phantom hitchhikers, that's taking it to another level. Like, oh my God! Yeah. Well, that almost sounds more like a like a woman in white sort of recurring. Right. It's like it's like if a person died, 
on that highway by getting hit by a car. And then they reenact that with other people. But of course, it's just this this sort of phenomenon that's only, you know, partially physical right. or, or a person sees a person in front of their car and it's so stark and believable that the sensation of hitting them is almost irresistible. That's really weird. You know, that's a big a part of the book, The Shining. In The Shining, Jack Torrance, and, and he's now he's got a complicated relationship with alcohol. So he's, <laughs> there's a lot of ghosts in his past. But one of the things that haunts him is this, incident that occurred to him in the past where he hit someone he's sure he hit them and then he stopped his car walked up and down the highway couldn't find anybody checked the papers for days afterwards but has always been haunted by the fact that he this is something that he did while he was drunk and it's the scariest thing i mean that's the scariest thing because anyone who drives that could happen yep uh, scott may have hit a, a ghost dog I was maybe going to tell that story, but I'm, I was trying to figure out what parts to redact and how to redact them. I'll just um, tell. To protect the innocent. <laughs> this is a 2021 story, though. This fits. Yeah. I did feel like, as we continue here, working towards the, the end of the show and in the evening, maybe everyone can talk about something they want to look back on from this year, whether it was an episode of your own show or some other thing that happened or whatever, just to turn the corner a little bit. I was with family you know, we had a gathering, we're eating, having some drinks, and somebody in, I'm, I'm going to have to anonymize some people. So somebody in the family was telling a story about their grandmother, who, when this person was very, very young, the grandmother accidentally ran over some kittens crossing the road. And this would have been in the 19, probably 70s or something. This and isn't feeling very Christmassy. Very <laughs> devastated. Well, it's not a Christmassy story devastated, pulls over, gets out to confirm whether or not this had actually happened and it had happened. But the oh. the grandmother was had a personality type that was about, well, just kind of an extreme control personality. <laughs> just mm. like, you ever tell anyone this ever, I'll be so mad at you, to, to the children that were in the car. Don't ever tell anyone this happened. So the, the children never told the story until this night about six months ago told the story and talked about how the grandmother was like, don't ever tell this story, whatever. So that was fine. So then I went to drive home with this person. <laughs> it's becoming increasingly obvious who it is. And as we're going home from the house where the story was relayed, we are on a road that I drive frequently. We're visiting family back and forth on this road. And it was late at night and not super late, but pitch black out, you know, and um, a little dog came out of nowhere out from under a guardrail in front of my car and I hit it and I mean I hit it good Ooh. and my car is a Land Rover it's kind of a tank oh. and it was a little pug had a harness and everything oh. it, it clearly had gotten out of either someone's house or the back of their vehicle or something and it ran and it went under and none of my tires hit it but it definitely was involved with the chassis of the car I of course didn't I didn't want to cause there was traffic you know we we're going 65 miles an hour probably so I didn't slam on the brakes or anything I didn't want to do a panic stop and cause a worse situation so I'm like slowing down I get over and pulled over to the shoulder and then I just am sitting there and someone else pulled over because they saw it they pulled over behind us and came up to the car as I was sitting on the shoulder because I was just holding the wheel I was in shock a little bit because I just felt absolutely horrible I still feel horrible about it to this day no idea where it came from and the in the section of the highway we were in 
there's houses, but they're pretty far away. It's not like a residential area. This is a, you know, it's North Carolina, Micah knows. It's like, it's between the towns, there's not a whole lot going on. So couldn't find it. No idea. There was no way to go back and look for it. It's it's 65 miles an hour. By the time I pulled over, I was probably another fifth of a mile down the road. Did you look in the rearview mirror as you're going? Is it just as a reaction or a re- reflex to see behind you to see if you could see the dog? No, because after it happened and I knew that I was kind of in an emergency stop situation, my primary concern was my own family in the car not causing a pile right. up on the freeway. Right. Because I'm always training myself for a long time now. It's like if you hit a deer, if you hear stuff, if you or something runs in front of you, evaluate the circumstances because it's probably better to hit it than do something panicky and wind up hitting a tree mm-hmm. and, you know, hurting people in the vehicle or whatever. So I did not look back but like i pulled over i i did like i got out i'm looking in the woods but like there's nothing there was nothing on the freeway there was nothing whatever it did make a noise i know it wasn't spectral then i got back in the car and the person who had told the story earlier was like uh she told me never to tell that story that was the same night that the story got told about the kittens you know it's not like i've been driving decades and obviously, over the years, I've hit a squirrel here and there or something like that, but nothing like this. And it was the same night that that story got imparted over a meal. So okay. it was a little bit weird. That's a synchronicity, if nothing else. Yeah. 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 Hey, thanks a lot, Scott. Look, I got to go. This has been great. Um, <laughs> Merry Christmas. Merry, Merry Christmas. I'm going to go jump off a building right now. But hey, Merry Christmas, everyone. Okay, no, wait. Rich, Rich has to write an episode of Titans where crypto kills about 25 cops. Oh, yeah. God, that's, I love crypto. Listen, that's what he's doing. there's a possibility this animal survived. It may have just tumbled. I don't know for sure. There was no blood. Right. There was no... Scott, you better you hope know. it didn't survive. If it did, it's coming after your it's, ass. It's uh, V for Vendetta. I it's mutated. Absolutely into horrible. a beast. Horrible. I've seen this firsthand where animals were hit square on. And I'm talking like 70s cars with a steel bumper. And uh, yeah, they're, they're yeah. banged up. Maybe had a broken leg, but totally survived. This happened to the dog of another... My only other paranormal story, really, where their dog got out and, you know, just was goofing around. He's kind of a, a wild thing. Uh, got hit by a car and came running back home because it's like, okay, I'm done being a goofball and, and exploring. It was totally fine. You know, the dog just came running in. And then 10 minutes later, a car pulls up, person gets out. They're like, oh my God, I follow this dog. I, I'm so sorry. I hit your dog. And I just, it just ran out and I couldn't stop. And, you know, they looked at the dog. He, he's totally fine. I mean, he's just a, he's a big goofy, dumb dog. But like I said, I don't know if I killed this thing. I don't know. I don't Here's know my other quick question. if I killed it. Going along the line that it, you know, as this other person you were writing with is implying that it is a message yeah. of you shouldn't have done I shouldn't that. shouldn't have told that story. Yeah. Then you have to extrapolate that the person who sent the message, who, who gave the warning, then sent the message would be callous enough to send a dog in harm's way to, to make a point. Again, keeping a lot of things anonymous, that tracks. Okay. Ooh. <laughs> I wish there were merry, merry Christmas good vibes. Yes. Hello, everyone. I'm Sonia. And I'm Charles. And this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Scott, that was a heartwarming story you told about mutilating a dog on our nation's highways. <sighs> I, I have so a story sorry. that might lift the mood a little. I don't know, but this is one of my favorite uh, supernatural stories. This actually comes from the California coast up toward Monterey, what we call Steinbeck country. And it's a really, uh, it's kind of in a way, to my mind, the perfect ghost story. It's about a guy, apparently this did happen. 
driving along Pacific Coast Highway, but again, way up in central California where you're where the highway is is hundreds of feet up above the the surf below. He's driving at night, driving his pickup truck, and it's very foggy. He's probably going a little faster than he should. And suddenly something just flicks right across the headlights and it's a dog. And he sees it and he slams on his brakes and gets out of the car. He didn't hit the dog, but he saw the dog and now he wants to find the dog. He's looking and looking all around his truck for it because it's his dog. And what makes it even stranger is that his dog died the previous week. Mm. Well, he's calling for it, looking for it. He can't find it. He walks up the highway just beyond the reach of his headlights and sees that the highway has collapsed. And if he had gone any further, he would have plunged hundreds of feet down onto the rocky shore below. The ghost of his dog saved his life that night. Oh, whoa. That's a good story. Wait, what's the provenance on this story? Where did this come from? Is it just apocryphal kind of fun ghost story or is it? I've got the book on my shelf over there. I think it's called Ghosts of the Central Coast. Oh. I can probably find it, but it's not a Richard Sennett story. He's the guy who covers most the the ghost beat up and down California. But <laughs> but this one stuck with me. I have no idea how how true it is. But either way, it is Christmas, and I figure it's a, it's a wonderful story either way. That's a nice story. Well, it, it reminds yes. me of one of Jim's campfire stories that I think it ended up, I'm pretty sure it did end up in one of his collection of uh, haunted truckers anecdotes, in that a trucker coming, he was driving, uh, of course, late at night, I think out in the middle of nowhere, he's coming to a crossroads, which did have lights, so it wasn't, it wasn't totally like a, a farmland, just four-way stop, and this other truck just barrels past him i think oh, yeah. on the uh, on the left hand side kind of shook him up you know as he was coming to this crossroads and i think cut in front of him and was in the you know he's like you son of a gun you know just expletives it's like just slamming on the brakes and swerving almost jackknifing and he's coming to the the crossroads and i think the other truck goes through but this other semi comes barreling through would have t-boned him right the thing that he noticed was that this guy's father was also a trucker, long haul trucker, and he thought it was his father's truck. Oh, right. Not only just a ghost dog, Rich, it was a ghost father driving a ghost semi. Right, <laughs> to protect the non-ghost son. Well, yeah. I, I, look, I didn't realize this was going to become a competition. <laughs> oh, yes, it is. I'll see your trucker and I'll raise him three dogs. Yep. I've got a ghost elephant on a, on a C-140, ladies and gentlemen, so everyone just calm down. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, there's other, there's other great ones. I think uh, uh, another of Jim's great trucker stories is uh, a guy falling asleep and hearing either his father's or grandfather's voice. Yeah told him to wake up yeah yeah and i want to end on that as far as like strange things that happen which aren't so strange i, I got a couple of stories i don't know if we'll get, have time to get to them it's, and that's quite all right as scott's grandmother used to say you're gonna dine out on that story for a long time 
when anything strange happens, you, you bring you it know, up. You're dining out. Wait, who's that? who did that? Who did say that? Yeah, no, it's not my grandmother. Okay. It was my wife. And it, it's like a Hollywood expression, like uh, a writer's yeah. room thing. Like, oh, you're oh, dining yeah. out on that, right? You're right, Rich? Yeah, oh, I've heard that. People have told me. I've told stories. People are like, oh, you'll be dining out on that for years. No one has ever bought me dinner based on a story. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. But that's that's the point is that is that when we hear this came up when our discussion with Terry to bring it back to the show is that we we do hear some stories from people and then oh god Jim yeah I'm sure you you have and as we all have being submitted stories I remember Jim saying a long time ago as somebody asked him it's like well are there any ones that people submit to the campfire they're just like I don't know that just uh, it's not ringing true it's a little too cliched it's a it's digging out an old chestnut and you hear elements of it. And what I'm talking about is when you do hear those, it's like, yeah, that's a little too Hollywood. That is a little too fighting the Mothman in the finale. It doesn't always end like that, as we know, when we when we do these stories. Or Rich, why wasn't there ever a Mothman fight? No, there will yeah. be in the sequel. <laughs> Mothman. Yeah, guys, don't worry. I'm, I'm, I'm writing the sequel now. The sequel! Yeah. Yeah. Yes! Uh, the I was going to say, don't tell me, oh, don't tell me that they cut it in rewrites, because I'm not buying that. It's it's a Jason <laughs> no, Bourne franchise, no. and there'll be like Mothman Prophecy, Mothman Legacy, <laughs> Mothmen's. This Ooh, one is straight man. to video. It's it it's just John Keel with with an AK forty seven. I think it should be the guy that's playing Jack Reacher. That the guy legs. from Titans is playing Jack Reacher. Oh, yeah. oh, isn't he great, guys? Oh, he's going to be great, right? Hawk. Alan Richson is not only a great actor, but just the greatest guy. I, I we're we're so sad to lose him from Titans, but so happy to see him go on to be Jack Reacher. I, I didn't even know he was doing it when the project It's going to be a hit. It's going to be huge. When I heard that they were doing Jack Reacher, I'm like, oh, you know who'd be great for that is is Alan, but you know, I mean, we've got him. And then like months later, I hear, oh, he's been cast. And I'm like, yay! Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> he's oh, leaving no. one show. Yes. Right. <laughs> oh. But he deserves it. He deserves all the success in the world. That guy's awesome. And I also remember that you telling me he was just infinitely talented, like dancing, singing, just like one of those all around like yeah. amazing actors. No, the, the other one that yeah. I thought was fake, talk about talk about cliched, is that there is a scene where Hawk and Dove do karaoke. And it's like, God, that's got to be Dove. That just sounds too good. That's not believable. And then, but Rich. You said, oh, yeah. And you said it was real, right? Yeah. It, uh, Mika and Alan were singing. And they're, I mean, they're multi-talented, but it used to be that actors you know, had to sing, dance, juggle, do impressions. They had to do everything. Then around the 70s, that changed and acting was just good enough. So I'm always stunned when any of the actors I work with can do a bunch of stuff because usually they're not called upon to do those things on a typical television show. Right. Alan and Minka, they can sing, they can dance, they can do a ton of stuff. And we're always finding out about the various talents of the people on the Titans. They're a multi-talented cast. Obviously, um, this is secondhand information, but when my wife used to work on SNL, one of the hosts that came, same thing. It was Joseph Gordon-Levitt, that when he was on, oh. he had all these talents that they could not believe. I remember that they said, it, I think at one point he was rehearsing, and he literally did the thing where he ran up to the wall and did a backflip off the wall, and they are like, whoa! You know, that's the just, sort of thing he should do on Saturday Night Live, because if he does that in a movie, no one will care, right. because everyone will assume it's been enhanced, or it's a stunt person, or there's been a computer effect. Yeah. No one gets any credit like that. That's kind of the problem about the era that we're in. 
no one really believes anything they see. Yes, here, here's the thing, though. That goes back to Jim's question earlier yeah. to all of us, and that uh, we're, at what point did you stop believing? I think at this point, there are some other factors. If you look at the PGF in 1967, that's pretty good, and it stood the test of time, especially... PGF, Forrest, your, your shorthand is showing... Patterson Gimlin yes. film, just for people that don't know when we say PGF. I know. Well, here's the thing. People would wish we would stop saying it and mentioning it. Yeah. And that and the, here we go. Sally House. Everybody take a drink. Sally House. Everybody yeah. take, everybody a, everybody shot. take a shot. Yeah. Take I'm a shot. on uh, the new flask, the larger flask. This is a backup. The point being is that uh, with, the Patterson Gimlin's fil- with the Patterson Gimlin film, that, that <laughs> footage. Well, we're getting to the point in the party where we're getting a little slack. Hey, we're, we're I know ahead. how to time these things out. Roger Gimlin and Bob Patterson. We're on act. Patterson. We're closing out act the four. 1976. They saw the Please, please. The Subruder, the Subruder Gimlin film where Gimlin was seen in Dallas. Uh, there's people there waiting for him now to come back. <laughs> no, they, they probably left. But, uh, as soon as the uh, Jody Maroney sausage stand packed up, that was the end of it. My point being is that that piece of film has stood the test of time and that no one has ever debunked it, that piece of film. You may not believe what's in the film, but nobody has said, well, there you go, that's CGI. You know uh, what, Forrest? I'm going to debunk it right now. It's oh, a man in the suit there. I just did it right <laughs> now. <laughs> well, you can, you, that's the point. Is that Here's the thing. You you can say anything. I didn't know. God, I didn't know debunking was that easy. That's my point, well, Rich. It to make it simple. Look, that is exactly my point. My philosophy is Ronco Showtime. Set it and forget it, baby. That's how we do it. You know? Yeah. No, that, that's set the point. It is that it's, it's so easy to just say, either say something is, well, that's not real. And then you move on and people will say, okay, he said it wasn't real. Or the person or somebody says, I'm the one who faked that, much like Bob Hieronymus. Now, I, I think he's he's probably a, a peach of a guy, but his story just, to me, sounds ridiculous. And he, But he may believe it at this point. He's told it so many times. But people will just say, well, there, there you go. Bob Hieronymus said he was the guy in the suit. There you go. Case closed. That's all we well, need to hear. What's so dumb about that is, look, here's the thing. If you're debunking from the angle of it's hoaxed, I hoaxed it, right. then actually it's very easy for you to back up your story. Go get the suit. Well, he, he did. Do it. I mean, you could do it. But if you can't do it, then your story holds absolutely no water. His story makes no sense. All these yeah. people saying, oh, yeah, no, we did that. We did that. Prove that you did it. Yeah. Don't just say you did it. It's very the guy who who ran through the forest with those big wooden attachments on his feet. Yeah, we talked about it. and and made those prints. He said, "I hoaxed it. Here are the feet." Right. And now we believe him. If you want us to believe that you hoaxed the Patterson Gimlin film, show us the suit. Do it again. No one's done it because it never. They didn't. Well, here's the thing is that there is a partial suit. It's made of red horse hair and a hide, and it looks ridiculous. I mean, look, it just re- looks D- nothing I don't like think that. you can say that. My point, wrapping this up in a concise thought, because by this point, uh, so many years later, we should be able to do this, in the fact that when you talk about if something is believable or not, of course, we're in the age where anything can be faked. We're now looped back again to where. Because I've thought about this, of course. If Scott and I, the people that actually like us, and, and you know, in, in the fan base, are would believe or at least give us the benefit of the doubt if we produce some piece of video and said, "Hey, I don't know what this is, but here is a bright light. It's not Venus, and it's doing a, a pretzel maneuver and then zigzagging and then zipping out of frame." 
And I, all I can tell you is that we did not CGI this. We did not create this. This is not Photoshop. This is not After Effects. Scott and I were, were walking back from Applebee's in Greensboro, and this was in the sky, and we shot it. There you go. Or chilies. Or chilies. Well, so, but, yeah. but here's my point is that that, that is what it, it comes down to. And at that point, it's like, well, either you believe us. I mean, you don't know if we did or not. We're telling you we did. And either your personal <clears throat> close friends of ours, and it's like, well, they've never BS'd us before. So we don't know what this is. And they're not telling us. Scott and I aren't saying we know exactly what this is. We're just saying we genuinely shot this. This is authentic, according to us. And you either believe us or you don't. And so it, it's now come down to very personal relationships and what you believe or not and it's like well i don't know this this dude on the internet on, on tiktok who's got this video but if i did know the guy and i knew him to be a stand-up guy and he's and he is a stand-up not a tall tale person it's like well that i gotta go by that i feel like the further you get into the study of this phenomenon the less you care about physical proof because the more you begin to understand that the nature of the phenomenon is not entirely physical I think there's like a journey we all go on. There may be sort of an er journey. I can tell you that my journey was immediately previous to writing the Mothman prophecies. And I feel like everyone kind of goes through this where you, where you decide, okay, I'm going to get into this. I've been hearing about this stuff all my life. I'm going to start actually reading those books. That's what I did in the mid-90s. And I started reading a bunch of books, and I really felt like I was going to get the answer. I read the the Bender book, you know, Flying Saucers and the Three Men, and they knew too much about Flying Saucers by Gray Barker, and all this stuff. And I was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm almost at the answer. And then I read everything by John Keel, and then I read a bunch of other books, and, and John Mack, and then The Missing Time stuff, and Bud Hopkins, and all this stuff. And for a while, you think you get it. Then you go through this phase of, oh, well, that can't be proved, but other stuff can. And then inevitably, it feels like if you really stick with this, for about a year and you really and I'm talking about just one year and you really look at it and you're really trying to figure it out you get to a point where you realize oh you can't prove this stuff if you could have proved it it would have been proven already then you got to ask yourself is all this stuff bullshit but by then you've spent a year reading this stuff and you've had a second insight and that second insight is these people aren't lying and these people aren't stupid the people writing the books and the people they're talking to the guy writing the book ain't stupid and the people they're talking to ain't lying. So what are we really talking about now? And you ultimately come down to, oh, this is stuff that is happening to individuals. And now it's up to you. And we get to the place that we are right now in our society where we are being asked, are you big enough as a human being to hear the story of a person who isn't you who is not from your culture, may not be your sex or your orientation or whatever else, and listen to what they're saying about their lives and not be so threatened by it that you automatically dismiss it? Or can you hear it and go, okay, that is very different than anything I've ever experienced. And I have to challenge myself to not be threatened so much that I shut you down and don't listen and don't accept your experience as a part of the world that I live in. And Rich, you read all of those books and you still didn't include a Mothman battle sequence. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> at a loss Stunning. here, Rich. I, know. I wanted Richard time. Gere to take him down. That's right, with a battle axe. Okay, 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 Rob, I will announce it now. Yeah. It's basically 
Die Hard with Mothman on a train. A Christmas movie. Mothman Dark Territory. But with a battle axe. I hope there will be a battle axe involved. I mean, I want to see, like, seriously. Are there snakes? Yeah. <laughs> snakes gotta be. Snakes on a train. Yeah. There we go. Moth there snake. We go. This is my Christmas movie. I just want to say for people that aren't seeing this. It's Die Hard. In the background, I have my Die Hard laser disc. And Damn, yes, I have a laser disc player. Laser disc. God, it's beautiful. Nice. I'll tell you what you should do. I read, I, I saw a tweet that said, if you watch Love Actually, and then you watch Die Hard right after, you'll see Alan Rickman get punished for what he did to Emma <laughs> yeah. Thompson. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. Perfect. That is some uh, synchro mysticism right there. Yeah, exactly. You're right. And, yeah. and I wanted to say earlier, one point I forgot when we were talking about why the Colorado story, you blow up a guy's car. Why are you threatened to hear other people's stories? Part of it is also with Berwyn and Dave Davies is that how dare you represent our community, our territory, where people might think we're crazy and that you painted us in this region. We're all a bunch of yokels now who believe in little green men taking us aboard craft. And Rob K., you were, you were talking about an episode, I think it was a mini episode, about UFO stories from Africa and how they view yeah. from their cultural lens in that it might be more spiritual and ancestral than right. nuts and yeah. bolts, right? Cynthia Hind, who investigated UFO cases from Africa, one of the things that she noted is that with a lot of the black people that live there, especially those that hold strongly to tribal beliefs and stuff like that, they don't look at UFOs as technology. They look at them as ancestral spirits. And the, the one case that I point to that is, as a great example of this is an incident known as the La Rochelle incident. And it occurred in August of 1981. And La Rochelle is this estate. It's right on the border of uh, Zimbabwe and Mozambique. And this estate was built by this uh, the family, the uh, Courtauld family. They had lived in Zimbabwe for a number of years, and they decided that they were going to move away. They bequeathed the property back to the uh, country, and they ultimately turned it into... You could actually book events there. Like, if you want to have your wedding there, you can go book that. It kind of served as almost like a cultural center and just an event center, and they ended up staffing it with, like, about 20 staff. And in August of 1981, this was, I think, like on a Saturday... At around 5.30 at night, this one woman, Eunice Kochti, she looked out her window because uh, there were a number of them that lived on the property. And she saw this weird glowing object in this tree. It was like an orb of light. And she saw like three individuals standing at the base of this tree looking up at this thing. And she watched this ball roll out of this tree and it just started rolling around the property. It eventually rolled up into this observation tower, went inside this room, and, and the way that they described it is it just looked like the room was on fire. So it ends up rolling out of this tower. And by this time, the main witness of this case is a guy named Clifford Muchena. He's like the head gardener. He comes out and he sees this ball rolling down, and it rolls around this corner towards this building called the Fantasy Building. It's basically where Virginia Courtauld, she housed a lot of her orchids and stuff there. So he comes around the corner and he sees three people. They were really tall, I think close to like seven feet tall. 
and he calls out to him thinking that it was his boss, a guy named Andrew Connolly. And when he does, these beings turn around and their heads are just this glowing, just like radiating this light. They're wearing this kind of like white type of material. He doesn't really give a, a great description, but the moment he sees that, he, he falls to his knees. He just decides to cover his head, and when he lifts it up, it's all gone. Ball's gone. These figures are gone. So Cynthia Hines comes and investigates this case, and she asks him, what do you think this was? And he goes, well, I think this was the spirit of my ancestors. And when she confronted him on that and said, well, that's not what they would look like, he says, well, you know, times change. So, <laughs> Yes, I love that line, too. <laughs> times yeah, change. I mean, like, a lot of them talked about this being close to, you know, spiritual, spiritually held beliefs. There's another case in which these uh, three guys were walking down this rural road. They'd been dropped off by a bus, and they see this light in the sky that descends it's an object it's like a disc-shaped object they see these humanoids come out of this thing and levitate down they book it they didn't think that was a ufo they didn't think that was technology they were like no we thought that was ghosts but we thought that uh, those were like spiritual ancestors so that's something you see pop up and even in the aerial school landing which rich and i just talked about there were a couple of kids during this encounter that were incredibly scared because they believed it was the Tokoloshi, which is this like water spirit that is mischievous, it's evil, it, it does nefarious things. And there is some of that built in. And there's even some of that with abduction cases. Oh, I thought this was a ghost. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting. And I mean, you could see those parallels in the United States with like ghost lights and stuff like that. It's kind of in a little similar vein, but yeah, it's just a little different. Yeah, you get that with cases reported by Native Americans and Central Americans, that sense that what, what they're being visited by, even though every element of the story to us sounds like, oh, these are aliens, there seems to be a connection. This turns up a lot in those books that you and I have talked about, Rob, by R.D. Sixkiller Clark. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like Space Age Aliens, and she's written a few others, Encounters with the Star People and More Encounters with the Star People and stuff like that. And that sense that, that people are meeting their ancestors, and it feels very personal. And then in a weird way, you have Whitley Strieber talking about how in the letters that he received from people who read Communion, they talk about how in certain alien encounters, they would see dead relatives yeah. on the alien craft. Yeah. And you almost question, well, in our culture, what is our relationship to death? And in other cultures, what is their relationship to those who have gone before? And how does that influence the way they talk about how that particular element is reflected in alien encounters? Yeah. Is part of it that whatever they are, you know, what Whitley Strieber calls the others, how much of it is they are projecting their image and their selves based on the audience and the framework that they work within and what they expect to see. Yeah. So maybe that's why now we see alien grays in the fifties, blonde haired and blue. Yeah. Eyed. And maybe that's why in different parts of the world, they see them in more spiritual context or indigenous people or whatever mm. the case may be. Yeah. When you look at the UFO phenomenon and in particular, like the humanoids sightings and sightings of just beings from UFOs, 
what's interesting is that like there's a certain time period when we start to accept them they start to show up it's usually in the early 50s and there's this group yeah the contactees they're encountering these blonde-haired blue-eyed people that are like venusians and from other planets in our solar system there are also these wide variety of different beings that people are seeing things that are incredibly short but also tall also you know there's these short figures with long beards and then you get to the 1980s and communion's released intruders is released and right after that you see this homogenous form take place the gray and that's what a lot of people come forward and say hey i've had interactions with these things in the past and so forth and so on so it's interesting to see that linear kind of progression from <laughs> and especially if you that, look at a disco wizard yes yeah there you go disco wizard <laughs> and even like abduction reports from about the 1960s there, there's a couple from like the early 1950s that you see from time to time, but from like the 1960s to about 1981, the abductors are very different. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite cases is a, an abduction of a guy named David Stevens, and he was abducted, and I want to say it was like 10 days before the Travis Walton abduction. The story is crazy because... Micah, I read an article and you included part of his experience in it. It was an article for Mysterious Universe about UFOs that affected cars and like controlled them remotely and stuff like that. This guy, David Stevens, he was home. He had a roommate named Glenn Gray. They both worked the um, night shift at two Man, different Rob, jobs. You were not kidding about remembering stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, he was on point. People's no, he's... names. Everything that happened. Well, his roommate was David no, you Gray. Know why. That day I... he was wearing a plaid vest. It was cloudy outside. Scott, we've seen him when, when Rob does, yeah. and this it's is like what amazing. we're impressed with. When Rob does an episode, it's handwritten out in that notebook, yes. right? Yeah. yeah, that's the connection, and that's that is why he is a. a it's amazing. He is yeah. a bright star. Sorry, I didn't mean to derail. No, no, you're you're like, good. You're good. You've just now been derailed by Scott. We all have it done. It's it's like being probed. <laughs> just, uh -oh, just take uh -oh. it. The and, laundry. Yeah. The laundry is being hung out to there dry. Go. All right, Please go ahead. continue. So David Stevens, Glenn Gray, they hear this explosion outside. So they go out. They don't see anything. But one of them has the idea, hey, let's just go take a late night drive. So they get in their car. They start driving. This is in Maine. It was near Norway, Maine, I believe. But it's like just like rural back roads mostly. And before long after they drive away, I believe it was David david stevens that was driving he loses control of the vehicle he doesn't have control of it doesn't see a ufo at this point but it's just like this you the car is being guided on its own and it brings him to a field and in this field he sees what at first he thinks is truck lights and then this ufo comes over and it hovers right in front of their vehicle it's this really dramatic thing there's about a missing time and uh, they eventually are able to like hit the gas and, and drive off. In the regressive hypnosis for this case, the beings that he describes are, he called them mushroom, their heads were mushroom shaped and they're very, very strange looking. They're, I wouldn't even consider them grays, but he ended up punching one of them in the face, but they just kind of backed away from him, which was interesting. <laughs> Wait, is that well, it? Sure. Wait. See, this is what I'm talking yeah. about. This is exactly what I'm talking about. 
someone is a little different, sure, their head is shaped like a mushroom. You don't punch them. That's not Christmassy. <laughs> eh, they're, they're fine with it. it you, you do what you do, but, like, my mind's going in a thousand different directions right now. But <laughs> if you look at those cases from about the mid-1960s up until 1981 when Bud Hawkins publishes Missing Time and he starts to really show, like, these grays showing up more and more they're very very different the the lee parish abduction for instance lee parish wasn't abducted by humans he was abducted by robots and these were one of them was as big as a wall it was black in color what one year of them, was this it's a case from kentucky in 1977 this guy lee parish he was leaving his uh friend's house okay. at like one in in the morning and he sees uh, this UFO on the road, and he has about a missing time. It's about, like, I think, like, 30 minutes. So he goes home. He's, like, white as a ghost. His mom, you know, is, is concerned for him. He ends up having, like, regressive hypnosis, like, I think the next day. And he, it's revealed that he was taken on board this craft, and he was examined by a large object that looked like a wall, a red object that kind of, when you look at it, sketched out it looks kind of like a small coke machine and <laughs> another one that looks like an oversized adding machine that's the best way i can describe it huh. but i don't understand this rob because in 1977 close encounters of the third kind came out so shouldn't he have been talking about grays i mean isn't that always what people say oh he saw the movie and then he, i mean clearly that's when it came out but he was describing aliens that were very different so i don't understand all right this is just my opinion I don't think Close Encounters of the Third Kind had the effect that it did on the UFO culture that a lot of people think it did. Because, again, boom, bingo! Boom, hot take, Rob K. Hot take. Hot take. Hot take. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everyone. This is Pam. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Now let's get back to the unparalleled duo. Scott. By the way, I just posted to the chat a, a yokai, which is Japanese yes. ghost folklore, which we covered. The Nurikabe, which I'm probably not saying that right. Yokai from Japanese folklore. I'm reading this from the uh, yokaifandom.com. It manifests as a wall that impedes or misdirects walking travelers at night. Trying to go around is futile as it extends itself forever. Yeah. Knocking on the lower left part of the wall makes it disappear. It has been suggested that the legend was created to explain travelers losing their bearings on long journeys. And then down here in the description also, appears mysteriously on roads late at night. As a traveler is walking right before his or her eyes, an enormous invisible wall materializes and blocks the way. There's no way to slip around this yokai. It extends itself as far to the left and right as one might try to go. Or as Scott would say in one of our very first discussed pieces of paranormal lore, dead water. The impedance oh, yeah, of water. movement and travel. Anyway, Rob, please continue. Um, Wait, can I interrupt you one more time? Yeah, no, no go ahead. Go ahead. You're fine. <laughs> I'm kidding. It was a joke. It's a joke. It's a joke. <laughs> yeah, and like uh, my mind's kind of blanking at the moment for more specific cases, but until you get to that certain time period, it's a linear progression, but these beings are very different. And if you... Like, a lot of people aren't a fan of Joe Nickel, but if you look at Joe Nickel's timeline, alien timeline, if you look at that, all of those beings from 1947 all the way up to 1987 are very different. The Dargos in, in Italy with uh, Pierre Fortunato Zanfretta, 
They're these. Oh God, I love that story. Yeah, they, they're these ten foot tall. It is one of my favorite stories there is. I want to do that 2022 actually. Yeah, Glad you said it. Just a wild story. I want to say it was uh, around the same time of the Pierre Fortunato Zanfretta case. There's another case from this guy who was uh, in Italy. I can't remember his name off the top of my head at the moment, but he was out getting uh, firewood. He had a little kind of uh, curved blade. It was it almost looked like kind of a machete or something like that. And he comes across these beings in the woods, and they've been dubbed the rat-faced humanoids because they have, like, their faces do look like rats. Their ears, like, point up. I don't believe they exist. Yeah, I, yeah. well, I mean, that's fine. That's Literally, totally fine. Never mind, Rich. <laughs> but, you know, they have these pointed ears, and they try to take away his, like, chopping implement. And he starts to fight back, so they they zap him with electricity. And then they float away into the forest to their craft, get into it, and then fly off. Oh. So there's just all sorts of weird stuff until you get to that point in 1987 where it's like, they're all grays or yeah but then they're not all grays they're not all grays they're blobs and they're and they're all kinds of things i mean i think there were always i think and people were talking about grays decades before close encounters i the idea of a timeline is cool but when you really look at it there's a lot of overlap with these things i just want to say i think we're influencing wait what, what do we got oh yes look at yep. this Close yeah, I'm going to pull out of the archives right here. Fate. Uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I mean, this is some classic fate. I'm talking about fate magazine, some classic art. But, I mean, these old issues, they were logging a lot of what was you know, being described by Rob there almost in real time, these kind of eyewitness reports. I've got another one right back here as well. Hang on. This is the uh, famous cover story, I think, by Jerry Clark right here. History's Best Case, talking about... Father Gill, the Papua New Guinea oh, case yeah. again. But, yeah. but I mean, if you see, we're already beginning to see at this period. And what, what was the actual February 1978 here? And this one was uh, January of the same year. Those who may be listening can't see. But we are beginning to see this sort of bulbous head, green skinned, large eyed, humanoid kind of a motif or archetype begin to emerge in the contactee literature. I mean, and that was being reflected in the art of that period as well. Yeah, absolutely. Rich, at that time, they weren't calling them greys. They didn't even pinpoint them as being, it wasn't even in the literature that they were saying, oh, these look like those ones, or those look like these ones. Or it's always, when you have time to reflect on that, everybody's like, oh, well, what Betty and Barney Hill interacted with were greys. So it's like, they're kind of like greys, but they're not exactly greys. I think the closest... Well, that impulse obviously comes from a trying mm -hmm. to get a handle on the actual physical biology sure. of the aliens that we're clearly going to meet and we're going to dissect their bodies. And I don't happen to subscribe to that theory. But the minute you back away from that, then, then you can be a little bit more open to the fact that, wait a second, they're not necessarily describing all the same things at all. Right. And there's archetypical images. I just want to quickly mention, mm -hmm. because we'll get an email if we don't, Alistair Crowley's Lamb being right. the entity that visited him, I believe in the pyramids or whatever. It is like, oh, there you go. That's a gray with a giant mm -hmm. head, the beady, weird old eyes. But is it? This all gets back to those semantics. It's just like when Micah was on our show and he was talking about the history of the Sasquatch sightings and like what happens is you it, culturally the descriptions get divorced 
from a, a semantic standpoint and in the nomenclature changes, but like when you go back and you look at it, is there common ground? But on the other hand, are you trying too hard to make it be common ground? This is my thought. I think that what we're experiencing is dictated by us. And the more I look at Skinwalker Ranch, by the way, and, and when I come back to that and also the things that are going on, ongoing things that are going on there, if that new TV show isn't manipulated, which it might be, but let's say that it's not, is that you're being exposed to whatever choice you make. And it's the silliest thing in the world, but like I connect it back to Ghostbusters, like don't think of anything or whatever, and it's to stay puffed out, choose a form. I think that what's happening is we're choosing the forms. And I think that's why Woody saw a lantern and Ender Cole got out of the lantern and it had a squeaky door like a 57 Chevy or like whatever else is happening. We're choosing the forms. And I think the stories that we recently heard from Terry Lovelace, which you guys haven't heard yet, but by the time this show runs, our listeners will have heard some of them. It seems like there's this thing going on where it's like, okay, we can't conceal this from you completely. It's a predator effect. We can't conceal it from you completely. You're going to see something, but what we're going to try to do is steer it in a direction that is acceptable for you. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that I've thought most recently, and this is like a culmination of of the time that that we've been doing our show anyway, and Jim, I'd be curious to hear what you say about this because you've been at it way longer than us, but and, and, and you have too, Micah, both of you guys. It seems like... There's a possibility that everything that is happening is might be coming from one source. Yeah. A grand unified theory of the paranormal. I would like to air to Jim Harold's thoughts on this, but I'll, I'll just add really quickly again. Uh, Alistair Crowley, during what was known as the Amalantra working, he was actually in the I think the United States, New York at that time, Roddy. Minor, I think, was his girlfriend and his assistant during this. Yes, I know I'm, I'm delving into some esoteric occult stuff here. But briefly, the actual appearance of Lam, again, being the prefix to the Tibetan word, which he borrowed it from Lama. Again, he's talking about the path, the way to go. That Lam character was, if I understand correctly, a sort of like ethereal, other dimensional reflection. It was almost like Crowley's other half. Now, I couldn't imagine a better way to tie this in with the Keelian stuff, and Rich will appreciate this. Again, I remember in the film, Mothman Prophecies, where Ivan Leake is meeting with John Klein and saying, they noticed you, Mr. Klein. Yes. Or rather, you noticed them. And no, they you noticed, noticed them and they noticed, noticed that you noticed right. them. Yeah. And, and this, of course, bespeaks Nietzsche's idea of, you know, when you stare into the abyss, it stares back at you. And that, that seems to really kind of embody this whole experience of the paranormal gym. I want to hand it back over to him, though. You know, the thing is, is that we were talking about the late, great Brad Steiger earlier in this broadcast. And, you know, I had talked to him about this very subject, and he was coming, I think, more along the lines, and I'm sure Micah talked to him about this as well, more along the lines of this. And the, the example that I think of is that when I was a kid, back in 1912, no, when I was when I was a kid watching in search of when I was a kid watching in search of it's like we will uh, oh, describe yes. UFOs, we will look at strange creatures, we will look at this, and it really was a good representation of where we've been at, and maybe less so, but pretty much all this stuff is siloed, right? And I remember Whitley Strieber, I got to interview him a couple. I've got it, too. I've got it, too. you got to get oh, it. The complete collection. Nice. So anyway, Whitley Strieber said when I interviewed him, and I, I know he said this elsewhere, that 
all of this has something to do with what we call death, or I think maybe his late wife said that. Yep, chilling. And there seems to be some connection. God knows what it is. It, it's funny, someone was mentioning earlier, Richard was talking about his journey. You know, when I started this back in 2005, doing these shows, back in 1906, <laughs> the thing was is that I thought, this will be great. I'll do this for six months. I'll have all these answers. Six months. Yep. Yeah. Six yep. months. Yes. I'll have all the answers because I get to talk to all these cool people. And I got more questions than I had when I started. So I, I don't know. I don't have the answer. But certainly, certainly I do think there are connections. I don't think there's any doubt. Right. And, and Jim, I'm so glad you said that because I think that if you're honest, and it's tough, but it's the, it's the Fortean way. If you're honest and you really look at this stuff, you arrive at a place of no answers. You don't, if you yeah. arrive at a place of the aliens are coming and they're, they live on Venus and they talk to me, you've gone off the path. If you, if you say, this is all bull and one of our most famous skeptics used to have a show called bull right. you've gone down the wrong path right? because you've gone down the path that makes you comfortable. I don't think any people that I'm looking at on this screen are comfortable with the conclusions they've come to having looked at this stuff for years and years and years because the conclusion we've come to is this stuff cannot be dismissed and cannot be explained. And that's where we stop. That's exactly right. Yeah, absolutely. To that point, there's two philosophical, uh, metaphysical, maybe Buddhist even, thought exercises. And one, being comfortable with living with the question Two, it's all connected. Three, as our listeners will have heard after this show, I'm trying to put our production schedule in the back of my mind and figuring out how this is going to come out as a little tease here. What we will have said to George Knapp is that after all these years, and certainly people with many more years of experience with us, <laughs> is that you don't get answers. But after all this time, you can ask better questions. And I think... I'm satisfied with asking better questions. You don't get answers, but I get more knowledge and, and I make connections. And one of the, the great things is I'm talking to all of you. We've made such great friends and have formed a community yeah. of people here, here. who you don't have to believe what we all believe. We certainly don't. I don't believe everything Scott believes. My God, that would be a boring show. But we <laughs> agree with enough in we are interested enough in similar lines and that we follow the research and the questions, and we put up with Rich's BS because it's it's so entertaining. But we we follow that because we're not afraid to ask the questions, and that's part of it too. Don't be afraid to ask the questions. Who cares if you look foolish? Scott is semi-skeptic. I'm the believer on the show, and I'm fine with that. My friend uh, David Baldwin, I was just on his show. He owns an ad agency, like a real live ad agency. He had a thing about branding, had me on or whatever, and he goes, just in the middle of the discussion, he's just like. Because he's been listening a long time. He's like, you guys used to be Scully and Mulder, but now I feel like you're just Mulder and Mulder. We all no. have different styles of shows and how we approach it. And again, I don't, we don't mind the criticism or, or the uh, objectionable comments. It's like people would say, oh, I mind. well, you guys, yeah, boy, you used to be so much more objective and presented stuff more middle of the road and, and this and that. And he didn't tell us what you believed. It's like, yeah, I think we started off that way. But as I said from the yeah. show one, this is a journey. We realize this is a yes. gap we're taking. There's evolution involved. And also, we're not journalism. 
we're not even infotainment. I don't know what we are, but we hope to be entertaining, but we're sharing stories. And in that vein, I think it would be an injustice if we didn't present all the sides that we come up with. Like I said, it's like we don't agree with it, but but here's what some people think. I mean, we think, okay, maybe it's a little silly, but but here it is. What's right. to agree with? What's to do? I don't agree with Scott. I don't agree with the experience that you had at the Sally House. <laughs> what the hell is that? That's not a. That's not an opinion. What what you're saying is the translation at the bottom of that screen is that makes me uncomfortable. Therefore, I don't want to hear that. Therefore, I'm going somewhere else now. If someone is talking about a conspiracy theory, if you're if you're at a party like this one and someone is saying, oh, well, don't you know what, you know, underneath the White House, there's a place where they've got all this stuff. And, and you're listening to this person and they're talking about something they can have no possible knowledge of. And they're talking about deep state and some conspiracy. Then, yes, feel free to get up and walk away. But if someone is saying, here's what I experienced, then that's all you're hearing. All you're hearing is their experience. And if you can't accept that, that's different. And look, you, you guys are doing a show. We're all doing podcasts. Th these things are being consumed as entertainment, as they should be. And people are free to go listen to whatever they want. They can go listen to the Skeptics podcast if they want. Or they can go, on the other hand, and go listen to podcasts that are far more fully devoted to the extraterrestrial hypothesis and conspiracy theory hypotheses. And if that's what makes you feel good, go listen to that. But I will say that I've been on this journey with you guys. I was there before Scott had his Sally house and I was there after he had the <laughs> Sally house. And I am telling you this man, I know Scott Philbrook and you are no Scott Philbrook. No. <laughs> with apologies to Lloyd Benson. Yes. <laughs> These, are the, nice. yeah. These are the experiences that he's had. And, you know, and Forrest is coming from the place that he is at. I've come to respect Forrest's wide-ranging knowledge and understanding of the history of the paranormal. There have been episodes that, that have allowed him to articulate that in ways that bring me such joy because they're providing knowledge to people who, who may not have had the time or the interest to go read those books. And Forrest sort of digests it down and gives it to you in, you know, part nine of The Exorcist <laughs> or whatever. But thank you. <laughs> but it's really, it's so well done. And, I, and, I, and then I'll say one final thing for you, uh, you know, Mulder Scully people. Scully was Scully for about three episodes. Okay. <laughs> Ooh, that's coming from a yeah. paranormal television writer, folks. Yeah. 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 So, Rich, what I gather from that is you don't believe that there's 10 foot tall urinals underneath Denver, <laughs> Denver International Airport. That's what I'm getting from you right now. Uh, but I've seen them. <laughs> I've peed in them. As Mike would say, in, in Brown Mountain, there's a secret cave where there are alien futuristic well, Mike urinals. is going to take us there. We're going to Brown. Oh Mountain. yeah. Like the whole Brown mountain. We, it got derailed by it COVID when mm -hmm. we were going to go and do a whole show there. We still got oh, that yes. plan. I really want to see that through by the way. Oh, you'll see Brown mountain. You'll find out, you'll find out exactly why they call it Brown mountain. In fact. Oh my goodness. <laughs> he, he, he really was drinking something from under the sink. Yeah. Oh my. <laughs> hey, yes, Scott. Exactly. This Clorox is really doing the job. <laughs> I'm in the Christmas spirit and you all should be too. As well-planned as, as all the variety shows of the 70s, Sonny and Cher, Shields and Yarnell, 
this is my idea from the start, a black and white version of Playboy Club after hours where we're just we're now going to walk over here and, t- and talk about some uh, <laughs> perhaps some men in black stories. Uh, and then after that, we're going to hear Sammy Davis play some some jingles, some Christmas jingles on the piano. But first, here are some MIB stories. Are we going back to MIBs? Yeah, I guess we are. Rob's got an MIB story. Rob, take it away. Look, it wouldn't be Christmas without some stories about men in black coming down the chimney. Uh, Come on, let's hear it. Well, coming down, it's like you could have just appeared in the apartment, you know. You didn't have to come down the chimney. Yeah, we don't need to make a whole scene here in public, but one of the favorite stories that I covered this year involves a men in black encounter in a Kmart vestibule. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You know, we talked earlier about this, Rob, your chestnuts of banality and just these tropes of, well, it happened in a Kmart dressing room. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. If you don't have a sense of humor about this stuff, what the hell are you even doing here? <laughs> Honestly, boy, like, that is true. you have to have a sense <laughs> oh, of humor God. about this stuff because some of the details are just so weird. Like yeah. they don't make any sense. No. So I want to hear about the Kmart. Okay. So October 2nd, 1981, a young man named Grant Breland. He lived in uh, Victoria, British Columbia. And but what time was it? Because <laughs> I'd like you to be a bit more specific. Uh, it was, uh, I didn't note the time, but it was late at night. His older sister had actually come for a visit. And this kid was extremely bright, okay? And I'm assuming he was a narc, too, because uh, he's a goody two-shoes. He has, he has his own security company at 16 years old. Okay, this is the kind of kid we're dealing with here. (laughs) So it's Friday night, October 2nd, 1981, and and Grant is walking his sister out and he sees this light in the sky. It's like very high up. And then he sees like other lights, multiple lights in the sky. And he picks up a CB radio that he has and he radios to anybody that's in the area. Hey, are you seeing this thing? Because like nobody else could see this, these objects that he was looking at. Even this, like, kid that had ridden past on a bike was just like, yeah, whatever, buddy, and he drives away. (laughs) But he makes contact with a guy. He's known as the pseudonym NB, and they both see this, like, red object appear in the sky, and it's disc-shaped. They watch this thing for a while, and it disappears. They kind of meet up and kind of become friends a little bit, but the following Monday... After school, Grant decides to go to Kmart because he wants to pick up some, like, radio parts. And he goes in there. They don't have the parts. So as he's walking out, he sees these two very strange individuals. And the way that he, like, describes them, they're, they kind of have that olive skin that uh, a lot of MIBs are described with. They're not wearing ties, but they have button-up shirts and and jackets and and stuff like that. And then he drops this one descriptor, quote, he had the impression that they lacked fingernails. Think about those words for a second. Yeah. He had the impression that they lacked fingernails. Not that he saw that they lacked fingernails. He had the impression that they lacked fingernails. That's just amazing. One of them, one of these men, perpetually had its mouth open. And the other one just kind of kept his mouth closed. He says that when they talked to him, they did not move their lips at all. The thing is, is like the way that he's describing it, he hears voices. It's not like it's in his head. He hears voices, but they're not moving their lips. 
One of them asks what his name is. He doesn't answer, and he just stops talking. The other one asks, where do you live? And when he doesn't answer, he shuts up. When he refuses to answer any of those questions, these MIB walk out, and Grant follows them. And they basically walk into this field. They pass through a fence to get to the other side of this field, and they eventually like disappear. Like materialized through the fence. Yeah, pretty much. It's like they just walked right through it. One thing that he noted is that his time in the uh, Kmart vestibule, nobody was walking in or out, even though this was a popular Kmart. People were going in and out all the time. Nobody was walking in or out. So it seems like a Kmart vestibule. If I'm if I'm feeling nostalgic, a Kmart vestibule is the p- perfect place for an MIB <laughs> encounter. I've had uh, creatures in various outfits encounters at various Kmarts as well as Walmarts. <laughs> the, po- the point is you see a lot of strange characters. Okay, wait, I was just going to say, let's keep your personal life out of this. Oh, us. no, no, no. That's that's my other point about this show. Blue Light Shoppers and Aisle 4. She was exactly right. <laughs> we have a special. When we were growing up, we're all of a relatively similar age. Rob here is our, our baby brother of the group, and we love him. Come on, I'm the same age as Micah. Don't even, don't really? even go there. Come on. Really? Yeah. Oh. Yes. Wait a second. Whoa, 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 stop. Micah, how old are you, Micah? Are you willing to tell us? In Earth years, I'm 38 <laughs> years old, which happens to be the same age as Rob. How do you guys know uh, so much at 38? I, I've been in my I'm furious. 50s, and I, I, can't even I remember a quarter of the crap you guys do in a fraction. I don't understand this. Well, when you spend a lot of time either at the public library or in your own personal library, which is your bathroom, you know, while you're reading, you know, in the morning as you're doing your business. I I suppose. You can learn a lot. I can't speak for Rob, but I know where Michael lives, and it's the middle of nowhere. So he's probably been doing a lot of reading. You're not far off. The Adirondacks are pretty much the middle of nowhere. I, I mean, like... The, the folks that specifically decided to create the Adirondack Park. It's were a beautiful nowhere, though. Yeah, oh, yeah they were yeah. basically like, how can we make this as middle of nowhere as possible? <laughs> I've definitely got those vibes. So what the hell else do you do up here? I mean, yeah. if you want to be outdoorsy and, yeah. and stuff, that's fine. It's why they say, you know, Seattle had great grunge because, uh, or Dave Grohl would say, it's like, hey, it's rainy a lot. We stayed inside. We wrote music and we, we practiced on our instruments. That's why you had a great band resurgence. But uh, before we forget... No, I, no, wait. I just want to say quickly, this this one's Forrest is saying. He was 16 when you guys were born, and you're both smarter than him. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's right absolutely <laughs> what I'm saying. <laughs> well, that's not true. <laughs> As Rob was... It's, it's, I'm the Bazooka Joe comic of the book I should be knowledgeable about as Rob and Micah are, I just give you the joke, the punchline at the end. I was like, oh, people are like, oh, that's funny. Yeah, well, that's what that case is about. <laughs> Meanwhile, they actually give you the details. But talking about something looping back here, Jim had a tie-in with a Terry Lovelace synchronicity, would you say? And Well, here's what happened. We were talking about beforehand any stories that stood out this year, and I thought of this specific story. So uh, I surreptitiously did a little typing here just to pull up the story and refresh my memory. And then there was a second email after the person told this story that had a Terry Lovelace loop in that I had totally forgotten about. 
It has to do with you guys. Well, I'll tell you the first story, which is cool enough. This was Mary, and she is a listener to Campfire, and she came on the show and told this story. And she's also a faithful listener. We mentioned it earlier, the great Coast to Coast AM, a big fan. And she was listening one night. Uh, her job required her to drive overnight or whatever, or come back home in the early morning hours. It was kind of, she called it her guilty pleasure because her husband was a real skeptic. So one night, one of the Georges or, or somebody on a coast was interviewing somebody about reptilians. Now, personally, I am not a big believer in the idea of a hidden race of reptilians controlling the world. That's sure, not sure. my bag. But she was listening to this and it was very interesting to her. And she came home and she, at the dinner table the next day, it was her, her very skeptical husband, and their toddler son who had recently just started talking one word at a time, kind of babbling and playing in his peas and the mashed potatoes. You can kind of picture it. So anyway, Mary and her husband are having this deep discussion. And she's like, well, you know, I didn't really believe in this reptilian thing, but so-and-so had some really good points, you know. And her husband is like, come <laughs> on. If there were reptilians, why wouldn't we know about it yet? It would have come out. And right on cue, the small child looks up and says, people not ready yet. Oh, and then he goes, oh, down, to, oh my goes down to his peas and carrots. And the mashed potatoes, which he's melting into devil's uh, power. He, was, he had just like started speaking two, three years old, something in there. Oh, people not ready well, yet. Wait is, a minute. Well, that, wait for it. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. not done. Okay. So this is the email directly from Mary. This is Mary with the story. I was listening to the Terry Lovelace interview on Astonishing Legends. He said something that stopped me in my tracks. He's talking about this woman who was like an alien-human hybrid. She was communicating telepathically with him, and he said she specifically asked her why we can't communicate with each other telepathically on Earth. She said, because you're not ready yet. There you go. Wow. Uh, and Rich looks <laughs> horrified right now. It's great. I remember. I think he's frozen. I think, I think he's frozen. I'm not ready. No. I'm not ready. No, no. But, but uh, before I forget, it's all a Venn diagram of paranormal high strangeness. That comet loops into weird things that your toddlers have told you about past lives. The most common one, Mommy, remember when I was your aunt? And right. what? It's like, where would, where would a toddler even get that? Well, there was one that I had the early days of campfire. This was a woman in England, and it was her son. And I guess there was a, uh, the windows were open. It was a warm day, unseasonably warm. And they heard basically what sounded like a biplane. And the, the young kid says, Mom, that sounds like the plane that killed me. You know, when my name was Henry, we were listening to the radio and the plane crashed and blood went all over. I mean, and he was a little kid. Yeah. And look, we love Joe Nickel. Scott and I really, I mean, we have a fondness for him. All the people we deal with is that we may not believe everything they say, but we appreciate their point of view dealing with the tools that they have in the subset that they have. And where you get a story like that it's like okay well obviously the kid watched some old movie right. yep. on tv you know world war one flying aces maybe he's watching wings and 
that's where he got that and extrapolated that story into that. But it's like, well, I don't know. How how likely is that that happened to the kid? And also, you have to look at the, the family scenario. Do you obviously leave on programs of black and white old nature with biplanes on them that the kid might have seen? Well, if not, then where does that come from? It's a good question. But there's a lot more weird stuff that happens that's a lot more specific to people and their families that are head scratchers. And if you believe them, I don't know. It makes you wonder. Oh, wait, the phone is ringing. I want to pick it up here. Hello, who is it? Hi, it's Tess, and I'm in South Catalonia. South Catalonia. I had to, wait, that's, you know, that is what you said. And I had to look it up. That's in the south of Spain. I guess bird watching is really big there. Yeah, you know, no Mothman yet, but uh, I'm still waiting. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I actually missed the recording because I was traveling to a dear friend's house in South Carolina, really close to you. Oh, so that was an autocorrect issue. The catalog. What makes I don't understand. It's like the autocorrect in iMessage is getting worse and worse. It's and it's and it's putting the weirdest words that you've never typed in your life in a like. Have you ever been to Catalonia or talked about it ever? I think I've talked about some folklore on it on the blog, oh. but I have never been to South Carolina or talked about it for any reason. <laughs> Much yeah, to South Eloise's Carolina. dismay. Oh my gosh. Well, it is it is very close to me. I haven't been there in a long, long time, but I used to go to Charleston, which was beautiful. I loved it. And in fact, I was in the Boy Scouts when I was a little boy, and we camped on the deck of the USS Yorktown, which is a retired aircraft carrier there. And you got to put tents on the deck. That was actually a lot of fun. So, was it haunted? I don't remember it being haunted. It probably <laughs> is, though. But, you know, they're not going to tell us, I, no. I guess, because they don't want to scare us to death. Well, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays, Tess. I hope that you're going to get to spend some time with your family over the holidays. I definitely am. But I had to call into the party and interrupt you guys and interrupt my <laughs> own vacation to talk a little bit about all of the wonderful things that have happened in my online life. Oh, yeah. Let's let's hear it. Forrest, you up for that? Yeah, let's hear some. So long before COVID ever existed, before we knew what a booster shot was, a vaccine, any of the mask mandates, all of that good stuff, my head still swam with virtual events, virtual friends, virtual gathering places because, well, all of you listening, I wanted to take some time today to celebrate and share the space you have made in your lives for legenders on the internet from facebook threads to subreddits from our inboxes to yours there are legenders intertwined together throughout the interwebs and we're only getting bigger so i wanted to talk a little bit about my pride and joys which is the facebook group and i know facebook or the metaverse will get a lot of groans but we have dug out this corner of the internet just for us Wait, are, are we starting a virtual world for our Facebook group through Meta? It's called the Alverse. You haven't heard ah, about it? The Alverse. Nice. <laughs> I'm a little intimidated, but uh, I'm excited. Haven't you noticed he's been a little quiet lately? <laughs> well, I don't have the I don't have the goggles to see what's going on, <laughs> so I'm just kind of bumping around in this uh, this Metaverse, this Alverse, hoping not to embarrass myself. But please continue yes. to uh, let us know about all the. Uh, it's really a dynamic, interactive inclusive place for everyone to just safely interact with each other and feel welcome. 
Yeah, it's the best use of Facebook's architecture, which <laughs> I don't have a ton of love for it overall as a corporation, but I do love our group and I love that it gets to be the way it is. And, and that's in no small part to you and, and the mods that you also manage. Yeah, it does take work, I'll say, to keep it that way, but it really, you're right, Scott, it is the best use of a social media platform that I've ever come across or what it should be. But yes, Tess and the other mods who really work hard to uh, keep it that way should be applauded. So thank you so much for all the all you do since its inception and continue to do on a daily basis. I think, like you said, we've really turned this less than desirable media scrap pile into something truly, well, legendary. Mm. Um, and I do want to give a special shout out to our volunteer mods, Quaid, Helly, Sandy, Kat and Bobby. Your existence is why the group exists. So thank you for the time, for the deleted comments, for the DMs, for the back and forth to make sure that everyone that wants to talk about us, about Astonishing Legends, Scott and Forrest has a seat at the table that we've created. As long as they're nice. <laughs> as long as they're nice. That's our first rule, be friendly. This year, if you're part of the group, you know we do an Astonishing Madness, which is always horrible. People always tell me I, bra I bracket everything wrong. I wait 16 points and one points. I don't really know what that means. I don't know anything about basketball, but I do know that Legenders love to vote on their favorite episodes. So this year's winner was Skinwalker Ranch, again. Mm. Uh, mm. That it's, that's its third win. Black-Eyed Children won one time, but that was only when I removed Skinwalker Ranch from the lineup because <laughs> I was tired of them winning. Mm. Oh so my God! It's like the to Tom action. Brady. It's the Tom <laughs> Brady of episodes. Well, I don't want to give too much away, but I will say that 2022 is going to start off with something that all those people who voted for Skinwalker Ranch are going to love. I predict. So, our first show of the year. Very exciting. Very exciting. Can't wait. But for now, there's the group. If you are during the dark weeks we've introduced mean mondays on mondays to laugh began discussion posts saw each other on legendary lounges even scott and forrest made a few appearances and we've poured over episode details and of course shared our lives via free for all friday and this is in no small fact due to you we've welcomed over 1500 new members and are almost at 15,000 today this year, there are over 8,500 posts. That's 23 a day for those wow. mathematicians out there. There were 117,000 comments. That's 323 a day. And over 600,000 reactions. And that's just in the Facebook group alone. On Twitter and Facebook, even more of you, thousands really, gathered for updates, favorite news stories, or just to drop in and say hi, or go to us about a tangent or two. <laughs> That is amazing. I mean, I can't, just the amount of activity in there. I made a joke about it, I think recently on an episode about it being like a terrarium. I always remember these, my grandmother had this terrarium that was on a white pedestal and it was a plas big plastic sphere on the top, mm -hmm. like 70s kind of style. And I always just, as a kid, I used to marvel at it because she never, she put, you put like a cup of water in it once a year. And it was this whole little world. And that's what I think about when I think about our Facebook group. It's just this amazing group. You're having to do, obviously, a lot more than add a cup of water. You guys got to ride herd <laughs> on it. But, like, it's still, it's it's such an amazing thing. And it, it's and not only that, there's all the tangential groups that have sprung up. It's just really exciting. And we're, and we're glad that uh, everyone's finding places to hang out. I don't know. It's humbling, I guess. To, it could to, use to more ceramic frogs. 
like a trillion. But <laughs> please don't uh, start another thing that I can't control. We've yeah. already had Owlgate. I can't suffer anymore. We had uh, oh, was it was it too many owls? Too few owls? What what was going I'm on? I'm pretty with sure in the span of about 24 hours, and this was back in the good old days in 2019 or 2018. Quaid and I received over 300 posts in about a day of just Ooh. pictures of owls, ceramic owls, <laughs> real owls, drawings of owls, um, and we had to put a moratorium the <laughs> in the in the group for some time. Please, oh my goodness. dear God, do not post any pictures of owls. Do not let this start a second one for all those Facebook group members listening. Please. <laughs> well, that's, that's my a, Christmas wish. <laughs> that's a really good example, though, of what has to be controlled so it doesn't get out of hand because it is like that weird child AI robot where it just, was it Whopper, Scott? It wants, <laughs> would you like to play a game? You know, and the next thing you know, it's uh, it's going to start thermonuclear war. Because it got upset. Yes, War Operations Processing. Oh, I can almost remember what it's called. The R, yes, the R, the yeah. R part of that. But that's from Tess. That's from a movie that predates you called War Games. Have you ever seen that with Matthew Broderick? <laughs> Can't say I have. Oh, oh, well, it's Matthew well. Broderick and Ali Sheedy. If you if you want to feel weird, check that movie out. But yes, put it on the a, list. Yeah, anyway. but no. My point is that it's a very real sociological phenomenon, I believe, where this thing is kind of a living, breathing, hive mind of sorts of like-minded folks. But even then, when something gets out of control, it can spiral out and people's feelings get hurt. People say things online that they didn't mean. That's, we all gotta be worried about that always. But it can spiral out of control. And that's why the mods are so important and so valued, uh, but also just kind of steer the conversation so that it, it's always fresh, it's fun. People are having a good time. And most importantly, people can, can go in there and not be ridiculed. Because as we all know, this is an interest that we all share, but is not shared, let's say, in a mainstream fashion with everyone. <laughs> there are still people, uh, good close friends of mine, I don't talk to you about this stuff. Because they're like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then the even, even though their eyes are stationary, psychically their eyes are rolling up into the backs of their heads. Because they're just like, okay, well, that's, you know, he's a good friend, but that's a little weird. And so uh, it's something that we can all share that's not shared by the, uh, the majority of polite society. So it's nice that we can all come here and that it is maintained as a safe space. And also we can let our paranormal freak flags fly. <laughs> so, so thank you again, Tess, for, yes. for heading that up and, and uh, spearheading that, being the taskmaster and... <laughs> What was the, the the large character in Lord of the Rings that when he screams, there's fire inside and he's got this fire whip and he's he lives in the mountain? Not the Witch King of Agmar. Oh, jeez. Not that one. No, I they got. go inside. Never <laughs> I'd rather be Eowyn. The, the, the giant, <laughs> yes, the giant beast where uh, he shows up and all the, uh, the other horrible creatures scatter because they're afraid of him and he's got that fiery whip. Something like that. Anyway. I'm that's... a little more approachable, but yes, yes. <laughs> I do have the power to ban, even though I, I will say we have banned less than 50 people in five years. And with almost 15,000 members, it's no small feat. And that's in part because if you're a jerk, you're probably not going to want to hang out in our group very long. <laughs> that's a, yeah. That's a and yeah, but also, yeah. by the way, thank you. You've been with us six years now yourself. Yep. It's unbelievable. That is just crazy to me. And that's almost equals as long as it took me to get back to you when you first reached out to us. To, <laughs> But uh. <laughs> uh, if only that me could see me now, 
I would know it was worth it. All those sleepless nights. My mom <laughs> telling my mom to shut up when I was when she said, "Oh, have you heard from those podcast guys?" And I was like, "Please don't bring it up." <laughs> mm. mm-hmm. By the way, that your band ratio, I decided to type it into a calculator of the number 0.003% of the people have been banned. So Yes. There you go. Although some people That's like something. to leave the group and then say we banned them, which, you know, <laughs> they can go ah, on their merry yeah. ways. But um, <laughs> speaking of the Facebook group, like I said, we have thousands of followers on Twitter and Facebook, and we've engaged with so many of you and read your kind comments, your snarky comments, and everything in between. And we just love hearing from you, whether that's on Scott's account, which is the main account for us, or mine. It's great to know that we don't live in an insular little world and that you're all hearing us and sticking it out with us and correcting us so kindly and offering even more flesh to these stories that already seem to go on a little too long. And it just reminds me that there's always something to learn. And also speaking of that, This leads me to Instagram. And though we've had an Instagram maintained by Scott for many years, I got the opportunity this year to take over the Instagram stories. We learned everything about the latest episodes to AL-inspired cocktail recipes. I'll be reposting those soon. And we've also had hundreds of submissions for the newly minted Warped Wednesday, which gives every legender a space to share their shortest and strangest encounters with something. I love Warped Wednesday. Just something, yes. And anything really out of the ordinary. But what's fun is that as short as they are, boy, they they really get your imagination going because some of them are real bombshells. I mean, just if accurate. I never say if true because I (laughs) I trust our listeners to submit to us as true as they can be to their recollection. So if they're accurate, they're pretty mind-blowing in just a couple of sentences. And, of course, then you want to know the rest of the story, and that might be it, but it's like, wait, what? Yeah, so it's it's, <laughs> it's pretty uh, it's pretty amazing some of the uh, submissions we've gotten because, like I said, when you ask people and you're sincere about receiving their answer or their story with just an open mind and sincerity, you'll get some amazing stuff, but you have to ask in that fashion because, like I said, we don't, we don't share these things because we know how they're going to be taken by most folks. Exactly. And I think even um, with like a podcast, you feel like, oh, well, this isn't good enough to write in about, or this isn't good enough for a whole episode. It's, it was a minute of my life. But I can tell you, I've had stories that 20, 30 people have responded to that happened to me. I went through that. Has anyone else heard of this? And if we didn't open a space for these tiny stories, they, you know, we would never know that people would never feel heard and connected. And so I think yeah. there's something to say about the you know, Patty deep dive, which is hours and hours and hours of content. And there's something to say about that weird figure you saw in your room. At the end of the day, they're all in this universe with us. Whether they took a minute of our lives or a year, it, they're, they're still worth talking about. And speaking of talking about, I also want to talk about email, which I've tried painstakingly to organize these last six years uh, oh, to varying effects. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This year, we received 2,011 emails from listeners, and that's a low estimate, Um, and they contained a wealth of astonishing content, from personal stories and well wishes to episode requests and corrections. You never cease to astonish us. And for all those people who write in saying, you'll probably never read this, I'll probably never hear from you, please know at the very least I'm listening. And that every email you send us, every story gets categorized and put in a folder. And while we might not reach out to you today, we might tomorrow. Or 
three or four years from now. I, I wrote <laughs> yeah. somebody back the other day. It was like a year, two years later. He was like, hey, I know somebody that was at the aerial school, witnessed the aerial school landing. And then and we can, it's my uncle, we can get him on the show. And I was like, great. And I wrote him back literally, I think eight months later. So, it, I, but I, I try to read all of them. I try to read, I do read, I'm pretty sure I read almost all of them. Yeah, uh, but it is hard to have time to respond. We barely have time to produce the show and that sort of thing. But <laughs> but just know that they're not being sent into a void. The void reads back. <laughs> yeah, please never be discouraged from reaching out to us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, email, or anything in between. I can assure you, at the very least, I'll see it. And if it's something very relevant, it does get forwarded. I do send multiple texts. Please read this. Please look at this. Pay attention. So... Don't ever hesitate just because you feel nervous or uncomfortable because we want to hear from you and we're here because of you. So we want to make sure to have the time and space you deserve because you do deserve it. That's nice. Yes. Mm. And one more thing <laughs> I want to talk about is some of the website statistics. As you know, Al demanded a makeover and we've yes. definitely reaped the benefits of it. And I'd like to say a special shout out to the blog and all of those who have kept me company over the dark weeks when I've worked on content or you were just so bored you needed something to scare you. Over 13,500 of you visited the main blog page with thousands and thousands more finding specific stories through Google, social media, and the newsletter. Even a couple people who had never listened to the podcast but happened upon the blog and are now in the Facebook group, which is such a strange journey from Google search to maybe I'll check out an episode to joining the group. And um, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you Googled us. And I'd just like to take a quick second to thank you for all the jobs you've given me. I've been an shoulder to cry on, an HR professional, a <laughs> social media maven, a administrative assistant, a scheduler, a Googler, a hey, what is this, or and everything in between. So thank you for giving me so many jobs, so much to do. And I can't see, I can't wait to see what you ask of me in 2022. And remember, if you do have ideas, if you do want to see something in the group, or on Instagram, or on the website, email me. I'm not making any promises, but I promise to always try for you. Well, Tess, you just, you do an outstanding job, especially with the blog, the blog astonishing, with the blogs, you know, an entry every day in October. It's just amazing. And uh, I wanted to tell you, because this is hilarious, we have a, a text, a small text group with some friends in it, including Jeremy Corbell and another friend of ours named Adam, he texted me uh, and Forrest a couple days ago and was just like, oh, I, I wanted to tell you guys all about this thing. And then, of course, now I can't even remember what it was. And he said, and I went to look it up. I was going to tell you about it. And I looked it up and he, he was like, the top entry came back. It was one It was one of your blog posts that I we didn't, yeah. and I hadn't seen it. So we uh. had a whole conversation. I was like, there is nothing more ridiculous than you wanting to send me a thing that Tess already blogged about that I also did not know existed. It's, <laughs> so. Yeah, that was Port Chatham, Alaska. Yes. Right? Yeah. Chatham? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. yeah. Uh, quickly, Tess, what's the, uh, just to give us uh, and our listeners a sample, what is the elevator? Do you remember? She's what is the elevator pitch of on these? That? Yeah, I know. Yeah, <laughs> I have. I have done just under 500 blogs as a oh, end of blog astonishing this year. Mm. I do keep a detailed list of notes of 
when people write in every once in a while, I get an email addressed to just me, which is the most special feeling on earth. And it's a request for a blog post. Oh, right. So I also check the emails and all my socials for blog ideas. And this was one of them, actually. So this was sent in by a listener. And it is a ghost town story. Um, it's located on the Kenai Peninsula. Mm-hmm. It's home to just about everything except humans. There are sightings of Bigfoot like humanoids, unexplained deaths, and of course, ghosts. Um, it was first inhabited by humans, as far as we know, in 1787 with some native people kind of resting on different spots, but not exactly Port Chatham. And it wouldn't even become a permanent settlement until the 20th century. But just a couple years after it was founded in 1921, it would become completely abandoned by the early 1950s. Members of the community fled en masse and the post office closed in 1951, which was the last inhabited building. And the last you know, remnant of hope that anyone would return. But there are kind of no reason was ever given for why everyone fled. Mm-hmm. Some blame a Sasquatch-like creature. Some blame the fact that during the 1940s, bodies were washing up on the shores of Port Chatham, mm-hmm. terrifying local families. Mm-hmm. And this was from, obviously, World War II. And Lauren Coleman dug up a story that was reported on an April 15th, 1973 issue of the Anchorage Daily News. Mm-hmm. The writer had learned the story during an event an evening spent with the school teacher and his English wife while on a boat trip. The story alleged to explain why the town left. Sometime in the beginning years of World War II, rumors began to seep along the peninsula that things were not right. Men from the the cannery town would reportedly go up into the hills to hunt doll sheep and bear and never return. Worse yet, sometimes stories would circulate about mutilated bodies that were swept down into the lagoon, torn and dismembered in a way that bears could not or would not do. Oof. That sounds like rogue Bigfoots to me. Yeah, it does. Sounds not, like, yeah, not, not friendly ones um, like our buddy. Gosh, what's his name? The story that it reminds me of, though, is Moochalot Harry, which was connected to Albert Ostman. Is that what you're thinking of? Albert the... Ostman is who I'm thinking of. Oh, yeah. I, called, yeah. Yeah. I was in college, so when we did that, and I called... That's right the local library, and I'm pretty sure that librarian started the call off thinking I was crazy and ended it with hanging up on the phone and saying to herself, what a sweet girl. I hope she's okay. Yeah, but see, now it's just, I'm sure they get several calls a week about Bigfoot-related stuff. This genre is, has, just in the last five or six years, I think it's being more accepted where I predict on the upswing of an interest in these types of things like we did in the late 60s, early 70s or the, uh, the spiritist movement and interest in the, uh, around the turn of the century. So I feel it's, it's a little bit more, well, I'd say a little less scoffed at. And as we see with uh, the UAP stuff happening uh, with the New York Times and the news in general, you're going to have to get used to some of this, folks, whether you like it or not, because it's just going to be in your face. With that is a blossoming or opening up of discussion, which is what we love about it. It's like these things should be talked about, not scoffed at. So I'm glad you checked that out. I'm glad you wrote a a blog about it or a blog entry about it because your whole blog section really is its own website. (laughs) It really is its own destination, which is what we wanted the website to be. Uh, Different areas where you can check out the show and, and all the links, but also poke around and have fun. And we should be doing more with it. It would be nice to. And we will, in the future, I think, have more interaction. I need to update a bunch of stuff on there, like the bookstore. The bookstore. Uh, Here's one question uh, we can answer right here. A lot of people ask, 
where could I find the books you mentioned in the audio section of it? Well, every episode has its own webpage, and at least, at the very least, those books mentioned in the episode will have a listing where you can buy them, what the title is, on the webpage for that episode, as well as the sponsor offers. Those will all be listed there, so you can go check that out, but I... I need to kind of cull those together. So we got a little you bit of work to do. You can always DM me, too. Yeah, we got a little bit of work to do, but uh, just uh, for Tess's blogs alone, it's worth uh, checking it out. Absolutely. Well, Tess, thank you for taking the time to call in. We're sorry we missed you for this party, but next year we hope you'll be there. We'll plan it a little better and make sure that you can attend. Yeah, maybe we can even have it in South Catalonia this time. <laughs> I, think I think that would be a budget. blast. Yeah, that's in the budget for sure. The virtual budget. We can virtually visit. <laughs> yeah, and remember, in the meantime, you can find us basically at 15 different touch points across the web. And if you don't know where to get started or are feeling a little overwhelmed as you stare into the void of your computer, just send me a message and I'll, I'll, I'll lead you in the right direction. Oh, thank you so much, Tess. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, I'll tell you what, it, it's been it's a bit amazing, amazing year. It's been so great having you guys here for this party. I think this is a great tradition. I hope that you'll come back. I think Forrest and I both hope you'll come back next year if we haven't uh, driven you crazy. Oh, you're contractually uh, obligated. There's no way around <laughs> it. You have to. I guess I wanted to look back, you know, just quickly before we wrap up. I was going to look back. We're all producing shows and we're doing things and talking about stuff. We look back a little bit on the prior year of things we've done and things that struck us. I guess for me, it's like rather than a particular episode, and I think I already said this, I'm coming around to a philosophy that everything is coming from one place. And I'm not the one that has originated that. There's a lot of people that talk about that. But you know, when I watch The Secret of Skinwalker Ranch and I look at the Skinwalker Ranch stuff, also we talk about all the other stories that we've touched on in the paranormal with ghosts and UFOs and everything. I'm starting to feel, and this is me personally, I'm not saying this is something that everyone should subscribe to i'm just saying that there there's a feeling for me that when it comes to the paranormal we all might be being manipulated into thinking that we're looking at lots of different things when in fact it's all just one thing so that's where i'm at right now that could change next year it probably will and maybe the year after that but that's the weird place that i've gotten to over the past several years of of doing our show and the things that we've encountered and that's all I'm going to say. I want to turn the tables over here to our other guests as we close out the Christmas party for 2021. Who's next? Rich Adam. It's funny. It's been a weird year, obviously, worldwide and, and here for all of us. One of my best memories of this past year happened over the summer. It was Fourth of July weekend. I drove up to Santa Barbara just on my own and listened to your uh, Astonishing Legends episode about The Conjuring House that episode kind of colored the whole weekend, but it was a really great weekend and a, such a great episode to listen to. I just wanna say that looking forward into 2022, for the first time, I'm actually kind of excited about a new year coming up with new writing projects. I might venture out into attempting to write some half hour, some comedy, which oh. people have been encouraging me to do. So I, I may dip my toe into that water, which I haven't done in about 30 years. And you and I have been talking with Forrest. There, there might even be podcasting coming up. Maybe it'll be a podcasting project. But I'm excited about that. And it's I, I'm at that age where I find myself saying things like, I'm excited to be excited. <laughs> just, just, <laughs> I'm, I'm just happy to be breathing. 
Yeah, it's like, oh, wait a second. There might actually be something new around the corner. And it feels like it might be something new around the corner. So uh, 2022, I'm excited about. That's great. And and we're excited about that too. And, and also excited about working with you no matter what happens in the coming year. And it's, so thank you so much for coming to the party yeah. tonight. And I hope you can get home. It's my understanding there's up to three feet of snow outside. The reindeer are apparently unable to move from where we had them tied up. But I booked a Santa Uber Black. Do, do you have a spare room? Do you have a spare room I can just crash <laughs> absolutely. in? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks, man. Yeah. Thanks. That's the safest way to do yeah. it. Just let someone sleep. Over. Thanks, man. I'll do it. <laughs> Micah, thank you so much for coming. Is there is there anything you want to say before we depart to 2022? Well, certainly. And to your point, the idea that, you know, after time passes, you begin to see so many aspects of the paranormal all kind of resembling each other. And maybe even there's some continuity between them. You know, again, the skeptic in me, I know people love hearing me when I say that the skeptic in me says, you know, humans have evolved over time and adapted to spot patterns and correlations, and we're really good at that. And this really, I think, in a lot of ways explains conspiracy theories. It also explains everything else about human nature. And so it's natural for us to want to see continuity between things. And in some cases, actually, to your point, Scott, it may exist. In others, it may not. That's part of the fun. That's also part of the challenge of looking at the ex, you know, the extraordinary, the paranormal, the supernatural. But I will say this, that if there's one time of the year where it is entirely acceptable to bring things together and to share space, it is certainly here at the holidays. And I just hope I'm not having to share that spare bedroom with Rich tonight because, you know, I may have to just cash it back here. And I think that bathtub back there on the second floor that looks just fine to me. I'll be okay. I'll be comfortable there. I may, I may be gone before the dawn rises, you know, like the, that, that wispy vapor that's left when the UFO takes off into the ethereum. But, you know, I'll tell you this. I'm glad I was here tonight with all of you, and it has indeed been a pleasure as we round out 2021. Absolutely, indubitably, and we have a pull-out couch somewhere around this place for you with, with your name on it. At least two or three. No, I already claimed the bathtub. All it's right. Fine. Wow. Jeez. Likes a likes a restless, uncomfortable sleep for the night. Apparently, so uh, quite all right, my friend. But we're glad you're all here as well. Rob, anything that weird that happened to you last year that you want to share? You know, this uh, year has been. How do I how do I describe it? It hasn't been a top-notch year in the 38 that I've lived so far, but I have shared many moments with many of the folks on this call and I'm thankful for that and I'm thankful for what I think is going to be at least for the projects that I have going on to be a rebuilding year next year. So I've already started to do that and I've already started to manage my time a little bit better, so yeah, I'm just kind of looking forward to what becomes of the projects that I'm working on. And as this year closes out, I'm thankful to be here with all of you. So thank right you. Right back at you, my That's man. That's nice. Yeah. Mr. Harold. Well, first of all, thank you for welcoming me to this august party <laughs> with uh, all the august guests. So that was a real pleasure. And just uh, in 2021, like all of us, you know, trying to get through the continuation of this pandemic, but all through it, my audience has been there for me. And I just am very thankful for them 
I mean, my gosh, when this all hit, I don't know how you guys felt, but in March of 2020, aside from all the other considerations, it's like, oh, well, there goes my business. Mm. and uh, Nobody's going to listen to the shows and it's yeah. all over and I'm going to have to go get a real job. <laughs> <laughs> and the audience has been spectacular and stuck through us uh, through the whole thing. Campfire grew more than ever this year, got to start a podcast being the behind the scenes uh, that my daughter does for us yeah. called Unpleasant Dreams and just uh, have had a good uh, professional 2021 and, and, and just want to thank all my uh, my listeners out there. I really appreciate them. I'm sure you guys feel the same. They, they let us do something very, very cool. They make it possible for us to do something very, very cool. And I, I think that's awesome. And I'd like to thank them. And again, to kind of share this platform with people like all of you, I'm honored that we can be in the same realm and in the same genre, if you will, but be collaborative and cooperative and and work together. And uh, it's just a great blessing uh, to have uh, all of you guys in my life. So thank you so much for that. And uh, just I hope that everybody, humanity, has a bigger and better 2022. that's actually going to wrap up 2021. We released the show a little early to get it out before Christmas and we're shutting down for the holidays now, but we'll be back on January 11th with two people that for me personally are the holy grail of astonishing guests. I still can't believe we got them. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell and Brandon Schexnader. The show is co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.